Welcome back to This Is Hardcore. You just heard Confusion, the track Storm the Walls. For those of you who have been listening to Call for Unity for almost 20 years, you might remember that as the opening track of the iconic Back to Basics hardcore compilation. Tonight's guest, Mike Scadato, the second Skadada to come on the podcast will be telling us the amazing story of Brooklyn's own confusion. To which he says was quoted as being the first documentable deathcore band. But I will wait for that conversation so you can hear it unfold and his take on all of that. For me, Confusion was a band that because of the people that were involved in the Philadelphia hardcore scene. Jamie Davis, who's mentioned a few times on this episode in our conversation, and the people Jamie's friends with already knew Confusion. So as we were coming into hardcore, obviously as good old heads would put us onto these. And um, I think J- I think Jamie's wife, Christy, actually took a picture because one time me and Jamie both ended up at a show, both wearing Confusion shirts. And... um. Yeah, so can't wait for you guys to get into the actual 
interview episode. I know it's been a while since I've I've had a true interview story guest type scenario. It's been a while, but we got more coming like I've been saying. So, but before we get into this, uh I live in a city guys might know this Philadelphia and uh we do shows. It's the fuck we do. Um and Not only do we do shows, but we do them pretty fucking well. And the reason why we do them well is because I feel as if the continuity, the continuation from Sean Agnew, who I would eventually learn a lot from working alongside him at R5 Productions, and later Sean would help me start This Is Hardcore in 2006, I would eventually branch off and do first Joe Hardcore shows, and then it was like, where Joe Hardcore presents, and it was Philly Hardcore shows. Then this Bob Wilson came around, and we'll get the Bob Wilson joint. Bob would then do FYA. And now we got this Stucky who's doing tons of stuff, AXBX. There's a continuity here. And the people that put on shows in Philadelphia do it because this is what we've always done. This is the stuff that we... Live for these are the things that excite us, and so Philadelphia is very lucky to have just absolutely awesome fucking shows more often than a lot of places. Um, not a hardcore show, but a very hardcore dude and a very good friend of mine, Vinny Paz, is playing Union Transfer Saturday, March 18th. He says this is his last tour ever. Seeing Jedi Mindtricks live has always been a treat, whether it was the First Unitarian Church, TLA, the Trocadero, now Union Transfer. Uh, Vinny's one of the best to ever do it. From a purely DIY standpoint, he you know has full control of his merch, full control of his art, full control of his music, and um, just one of the greats. And hopefully this isn't his last show, but if you got tickets... March 18th, you're going to be in for a fucking treat. Um, March 20th, Bike Roots, Spite House, OK Buddy, West Main. This is at Bonks, Port Richmond. And then Thursday, March 23rd, Tsunami Spy, Missing Link, Fool's Game, and the new band with Tyler Mullen, former frontman of Year of the Knife, current Skins Ripper of Gridiron, drummer, Playing the First Unitarian Church. This show is sold out. Bob Wilson puts a fucking banger on Thursday night. But it don't end here, folks. It don't. If you listened to the last episode, you would have heard Carter from From Within. Lennon from the Plead Your Case fanzine. I always forget the name of the thing he did too. But um, these guys are all in amazing bands. And I think, you know, a lot of people... Checked out last week's episode. Had a couple of friends like, damn, dude, I didn't even know these guys were in all these bands. So, young boys schooling the old heads and vice versa, I guess. But coming together for Hardcore Pride Weekend, Friday, March 24th, 6 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church. Gridiron, you know that shit. Magnitude, Simulacra, Adrian, Moment of Truth. Never Again, Statement of Pride, Killing Me. Whew. That's a fucking ripper on a Friday. Saturday, show has now been moved to West Kensington Ministry. That is right near Norris Square. Norris right under the 
train, the market line. Nah, it's not a hard place to find. Show has been moved. 3 p.m. Pain Clinic, Ty Dawson, Pittsburgh. Wreckage, one of the best bands from New York right now. Bernard Shaw from Florida, Almighty Washington. Carbonite, that fucking band. That's a band Lennon's in. Chemical Fix, Live It Down, B.O. Endo, Envision, Seed of Pain, Mind Force. Wow. And ain't over yet. The next day, March 26th, Stateside Jockey, The Great American Typewriter, and more at the Media VFW. Now there's two shows, Friday, March 30th. 7 p.m., Chemical Fix, Jive Bomb, Gum, and Bankrupt are playing the Snake Pit, Undisclosed Location. Ask a Punk or Bob Wilson or Stucky. And there's also the First Unitarian Church with Vane, Year of the Knife, Foreign Hands, and Gloves Off. Wild times. And then uh, April 7th, Standstill, Wild Red, Sun Title, Capsule, Nave, Atunes, Voorhees. It's an AXBX show. Lots going on here in Philadelphia. And, uh, yeah, that's how we like to uh, roll out here. So, support at Philly HC Shows. Instagram, Twitter, also philly-shows.com for your tickets. A lot more coming up. Actually, I'm not supposed to say this, but we are announcing another big, awesome show at Underground Arts tomorrow at 3 p.m. So stay tuned if you are following us. And if you're not, make sure you fucking follow us. Um, get hit up a lot now because people have donated and checked in. Patsky, my mother, doing well. This podcast is going to come about about 30 minutes later than it usually has because I was up all night making shepherd's pie so we can all enjoy a traditional St. Patty's meal with the McKay slash Flanagan gang. My mother, Patricia Lynn Mary Flanagan. My father, Joseph McKay. My sister and I are McKays. Her sons are McKays. My kids are McKays. So we're getting together for a little Irish dinner. And so this comes out 25 minutes later. But Paskey, she's doing well. I ended up, I think a week from now, she gets another PET scan. That's the scary thing because that's the one that they go in and see what fucking devilish, evil, corrosive cancers left in her body. And we can only pray to the Lord Almighty that that's the end of this for right now. And we get a couple more years with the old girl. So what else is going on in hardcore? I would have to say that between the beginning of Fest, Chaos, announcements, 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 new records, new records, new records, tours, 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 bullshit articles. You hear me blather on about this a lot in these solo episodes. I don't want to take away too much time before we get in this awesome interview with Mike Scadato. But I will say that it is more important for the people that are going to shows to not dwell on what is written on the internet by anybody. Whether it's stereo gum, whether it's... There are so many ridiculously lazy people who don't want to have a good job. So they go and they write for some stupid article. Or they write a stupid article for some paper. Which is not a paper, it's a fucking news link that would used to be a former newspaper. And it's so easy, the bar is so fucking low to write for the shit. And it's like clear, unabashed, dick-sucking, capping as the kids would say now, 
and it's not honest. And I don't mean for a record review to be honest, there has to be criticism, but it's completely devoid of any criticism. It's completely devoid of anything besides selling whatever that record is as being the penultimate greatest. No one's going to do better. Harkens back to a blah, blah, blah time and written by people who were barely, if at all, ever really truly in the hardcore scene, if at all truly ever aware of these iconic former records of these golden eras because they don't really weren't there. And so mind the propaganda. Support the things that make you happy. Support the things that your friends are doing. Support the things that when you're standing in front of it, it feels right. It feels good. It's like, oh, this is a fucking hardcore show. Because a lot of what's being sold is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Or fool's gold, so to speak. And it's not the detract because it has its place. A lot of younger folks found co- uh, post-COVID or during covid the TikTok and the hardcore and started coming around and some have been absolutely fantastic additions to the, sh- to, the, to the shows and the scenes, brought in some new life and some new bands. But I'll say that with the aside of people who aren't doing this for a living, there is no true criticism of any new music that comes out. And the way the Twitter and the algorithms work, if you say anything negative or anything contrary to whatever brand new thing comes out as the greatest thing of all time, you're just going to get attacked by stupid assholes and people who have anime fake profiles, burner accounts, as you say. So don't bother. Support the shit you like. Support the people you like. Go to the shows that you want to be at. Do not feel like you have to say that you like something. Oh, yeah, you, you can be like me and Guy. You know, I don't even know this. Or, I don't know, I just saw the guy's face and I didn't like it, which is something I definitely would say and have said. Yeah, it's, I'm, I very often take a negative view on things before I take a positive and then I go, oh, yeah, I was wrong. This fucking shit's great. Sometimes I just see it live and I go, holy fuck, I don't even know what it is, but that was sick. Lots of cool videos. Um, I will usually not read as I'm talking because I get confused because I can barely... It's like walking and chewing gum at the same time. But my friend, Delian Stefanov from Facebook, writes, I was recently in Bangkok to a hardcore show, and this Shredder, which is the coolest fucking name for a fucking hardcore band, they are Chiang Mao Hardcore, I guess that's how you say it, My sorry my pronunciation, uh, covered Shattered Realm. They sent me a video, which I think is fucking absolutely insane and awesome. Um, expect cool shit from Shadow Realm. Expect us to be playing in, fuck, <laughs> fucking such a lazy, oh shit, yeah, two weekends from now we're playing Atlantic City with Painted Truth and Hold My Own at the Anchor Club in Atlantic City. And there'll be a lot of really cool shows coming up, so we'll be seeing each other a lot more, handing a lot of flyers out, getting ready for the big fucking dance. You know, this is fucking hardcore. Ah, let's say we got slots filled up, completely filled up. This shit is booked. This shit is ready to fucking go. And, you know, just like that bullshit propaganda I was talking about, where the guy's like, yo, man, I think this is the best record we ever put out. I, I'm not saying it because 
I have my own opinions. But the team feels like this this specific lineup, the assortment of bands, the variety of bands, the building of the bands might be one of the best modern lineups we've ever put together. And to hear it from people who I love and respect, people who would give me true counsel and not to say, yeah, Joe, you're right, you're right. Like actually people would come back and say, now you should do this or don't fuck with this or no, don't let this band play so high. Like That's the kind of criticism and the input that I need. They're saying it's pretty good, so I'm going to go with them because, you know, these guys know what they're talking about. So get ready for some This Is Hardcore-centric episodes on this podcast, a lot more interviews. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast, and let's roll into an amazing conversation with Mike Scadano, somebody who has been a part of New York Hardcore for a very long fucking time and managed to do so on his own. And the way I say his own is like, you know, Mike's in a, in a New York hardcore band with long hair, wearing black metal shirts, but singing in a completely pure hardcore band, Inhuman, and that comes after the confusion conversation we're going to have. Later on, he would be in The Last Stand. He is one of four hardcore brothers. Kevin Scadano, who was in the first ten episodes of this, fa- uh, this podcast, he was the, Kevin was the booker, manager of the legendary Castle Heights venue in Queens. We have John Scadano, the old head, who's in Lament. Cool old school New York hardcore dude. Got to hang out with him a bunch of times. Um, very affable dude. And obviously put the brothers onto the path. And then the youngest of the family, Mark Scadano. You might remember him from uh, Liner Notes or a little band called Shutdown. Yeah. So... Very important New York hardcore family, Mark, Mark, Mike, Kevin, John. But Mike's story is pretty fucking awesome. And it's also the fact that there's been no point in time since he found hardcore that he ever stopped. He never, you know, know, I started getting into this, you know. Never had his uh, jujitsu phase or his uh, crossfit phase where he gave up. He never stopped listening to this shit. It's 100% a huge part of his life and his input and analysis and view was a fresh look at some of the things from back then and the story of confusion is absolutely fucking awesome so let's fucking go today i am talking to mike scadato this is now the second scadato in a uh in a hundred plus episodes mike not only has been a huge part of new york hardcore from some of the earliest things that i can think of that were brought to me as this is shit you guys should be listening to hardcore courtesy of Jamie Davis and <laughs> um, his love of confusion. And then later on Mike with inhuman and, you know, just not only just because of the, the legacy of what you and your brothers did, but also the length of time that you put into hardcore and more of what we'll talk about in the metallic side of things. But just the fact that this is not just like a, um, a sticker or a t-shirt thing. It's like hardcore is my life. This is literally your entire life has been in some form enjoying the music, performing music. But the biggest thing is constantly supporting the fucking music. It's incredible how many bands you support, how many bands, you know, like I I would put you and Ron Grimaldi up there as two Mm -hmm. of the most well-known, well-versed in not just the kind of hardcore you like, but just an overall broad sense of the entire genre. So yeah. I'm sorry it took over 100 episodes, but I'm very glad to have you on the show. 
Uh, thanks a lot, Joe. Very uh, happy to be here, man. Stoked to be here. I listen to the podcast every week, so uh, what? I'm a fan of the show. Yep, I'm I, I'm a fan of the Damn, show. So. so- that's awesome, man. That's awesome. <laughs> I never expect to hear that from the guests. That's that's a surprise. But thank you for the support. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I mean, I I listen to just uh, you know a short list of, of hardcore podcasts. I listen to you guys and Axe to Grind, and now I'm listening to the uh, the Hardlore podcast, which is hilarious. So uh, th- those are my big three. So very happy should, to be here. If you, if you get a chance, give that one eighty five miles south. They, they they tackle a lot of the West Coast stuff, but they give a lot mm. of love to East Coast things. Hardlore brought a lot of comedy and like a, a lighter side to podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, f- I fucking literally can laugh just listening to that. <laughs> I um to start off, let's just go. Uh, we had Kevin's we had Kevin's back a whole background, and I'd love to get your perspective on in general what it was like growing up in the family of Scadados. Well, yeah, I mean, there was all boys, you know, a lot, a lot of male energy, so to speak. Uh, five boys. I'm the fourth of the five. But um, I, you know, I, I honestly, like our father, you know, he was a tremendous, tremendous fan of Elvis Presley. OK, I'm talking like when I would come home from school and if dad happened to be home and music was on, it was Elvis. Anytime dad had a free moment to play music. It was Elvis. So it was ingrained in, in all, probably all five of us, the love of Elvis back then. Um, another artist that he really loved, he loved the Rolling Stones. That's probably like his number two. Uh, Rolling Stones and Elvis was like the tremendous part of like the background music of my life. And I guess probably around, I don't know, 10 or 11 what year would that exp- be for us to just attract? I mean, well, I turned 50 this year. Uh, okay. I was born in 1973. And so this year marks, uh, <laughs> yeah, this year marks my 35th year of New York hardcore, hardcore, so to speak. That's so fucking uh, awesome. You know, and I guess at around 10 or 11, um, heavy metal came into the picture, you know, uh, courtesy of my brother, John, who is two years older than me. He was born in 71. Um, John actually developed like John's the first one in a band period. He was in doing like heavy metal covers, singing with his friends at like 12 and 13. And I would like go to see him sing with these other kids from Cheapset Bay, Brooklyn, um, just a few blocks from our house. Like I have these vivid memories of that, you know, like. Iron Maiden covers and Black Sabbath, Motley Crue, you know. Um, so I, I guess heavy metal might have been the, the first real love, you know, uh, of music in my life. Because I was pretty, you know, as a young kid, you see like the Iron Maiden imagery and the Motley Crue imagery. And, I, I couldn't agree yeah, more. That's yeah, exactly, like the, the, that's, that's exactly where I came from. Right, came right. From. Like, and the birth of, you know, like metal music videos and, and things like that. I mean, it just left quite an impression on me, you know? And, and we grew up in, you know, Cheaps at Bay, Brooklyn, which was back then, you know, largely Irish and Italian, but a lot of Italians, a lot of Guidos. And, you know, I wasn't a Guido. I had blonde hair and blue eyes. I didn't, I didn't really fit in. I didn't even look like my other brothers. Uh, I was the only brother that even, you know, had straight blonde hair, blue eyes. All my brothers had brown hair and brown eyes. 
Um, and I think like metal, I guess, spoke to me as a young kid, you know, because I, I didn't want to listen to dance music. I didn't want to listen to like Guido freestyle music. So, yeah. When, when you first were exposed to this, who was the one who brought, it was John who bringing that the heavy metal into the house. Yeah, it was. I mean, John, John even bought uh Slayer's show. No mercy. Wow. In like on vinyl in like, because that came out in late 83. I think he bought it in the beginning of 84 at the, the local record store by us called Zigzag Records, which is like this infamous record store that had like Iron Maiden in stores. And, you know, like huge bands came to this part of Brooklyn to do in stores in the 80s because they all played Lamore and they would do the in store, you know, at Zigzag. Uh, I remember John Burholm's Show No Mercy and like scared the shit out of me. Like like looking at the cover and listening to it and reading the lyrics of Show No Mercy. It was like, what the fuck is this? Like this isn't this isn't Iron Maiden or Motley Crue. Like this is something else, you know? So that was like the beginning of of re- heavier music kind of slowly getting ingrained in my head, hearing the the Metallicas and the Slayers and maybe even some Venom. Like, you know, so John was was a, a young metalhead. And since I was two years younger, I guess, you know, I kind of looked up to him and he was doing like metal covers for a little while, believe it or not. And then he kind of left metal and I got more into it. And, you know, I guess the progression of like heavy metal into thrash metal, you know, like I found Nuclear Assault and Overkill, and you know, Megadeth and, you know, thrash metal also kind of spoke to me. I was always, I guess, in search of like the next level of heaviness, you know? Now, because of New York, was there, were you cognizant if there was any punk rock in the area or, or anything like the Ramones or was that just all, there's always a, uh, some of the older guys who will be like, we didn't listen to the punk stuff first. We listened to Kiss and yeah, that would well, lead us to that. <laughs> like, here's the thing. I mean, I probably heard the name, the Ramones, um, there was this club in Cheapside Bay, this short-lived club called the Brooklyn Zoo that was three to four blocks away from our home. And the Ramones played there. Billy Idol played there. Like a lot of these early 80s, late punk, early new wave artists played there. And I, I would remember hearing about it, but I guess, I don't know. It was just kind of went in one ear and out the other because I, I was, you know, metal was the thing and going to Zigzag Records and, using my allowance money to buy, you know, Judas Priest records. And th- that was all that really mattered. Like hearing about this obscure stuff going on at this club that I was way too young to get into didn't, didn't really matter to me yet. You know, not yet. It was kind of, I was kind of knocking on the door of, of what was going to be the next level of music, Joe. Now was your father who was an Elvis man? Was he uh Supportive of John doing these uh doing these shows, or were just kind of like happy that you guys weren't getting in trouble in the neighborhood? They were probably just happy that we weren't getting into trouble because we actually didn't really get into trouble. Um, you know, uh, yeah, John, it, I don't think he ever got to play shows. It was literally just basement rehearsals, and at one point he was even in a band with uh, Eric Morgan, who was in Lament. He's on the Lament Seven Inch, yeah. and this is them. This is them when they're like young kids, you know? Um, and then Eric went on to be in this band called First Order, which was this great uh, South Brooklyn thrash metal band that, that played Lamore a lot, uh, pre-Lament. 
Um, and I guess like all these kind of seeds were, were being planted, you know, uh, for finding hardcore music, not much after really, you know, getting into the thrash stuff. Now, what age do you think that you really started having a better idea of, you know, like obviously the progression we know, you mm-hmm. know, you, you, the Iron Maidens was always like the, the first thing that really popped. And as you said, you started checking out, but when did you really started thinking like, this is more of like a, a secret society. It isn't just like, Oh, people listen. Like when do you feel like you were kind of cognizant? Like, Oh shit, not everybody's actually into this. Like, or were you, <laughs> I think around eighth grade, right. Um, Eighth grade, I was listening to Anthrax's Among the Living, right? And I fucking love that record in eighth yes. grade, okay? 87. And, you know, I didn't have long hair. I, I wasn't allowed to have long hair. I had short hair, you know, like short-haired 12, 13-year-old metalhead. Um, and it's just this weird random memory. Like, we went on the school trip, right? And uh, to, like, Virginia somewhere, uh, eighth grade trip, you know, and uh, to Bush Gardens, Colonial Williamsburg. And I remember on that trip seeing a bunch of long-haired metalheads, right? And they had like, you know, anthrax jackets and Metallica jackets. And I just remembered, I was like, that's, that's you know, what I should be looking like, you know, instead of this goofy short-haired kid. Like I wanted to look like a real kind of thrash metal kid, you know? But the funniest thing is that I kind of never really got to because hardcore completely interrupted that look. <laughs> when did you, when was the first time you even heard that word hardcore? Um, at some point in eighth grade, um, me and like uh, John Lamacchia, who's my, my friend since kindergarten, me, John, and my buddy Tommy, who uh, the three of us had started this band Close Call with that I'll, I'll get to a little bit. Um we met these other kids in the neighborhood who were skateboarders and they were, we thought they were punk rockers, but what, the more we got to know them and hang out with them, they were like, no, we're hardcore kids. And we're like, what the fuck is that? You know, like, and they're like hardcore punk and we're hardcore kids. We're not punk rockers. It's like, fuck punk rock. Punk rock is dead. Like these were things told to us by kids from, you know, sheep said Bay that were a little bit older than us. And then not, not, much further after that, I would end up being in a band with some of these kids. And like, these would be the people I would be going to CBGB's with. And they took me to my first show at the Ritz. So it was like other kids in the neighborhood who were skateboarders who were already going to CBGB's at a pretty young age every Sunday who said, you know, punk rock is dead. You know, this is hardcore music. That's fucking awesome. And also mm. serendipitous. <laughs> yes, very. Um, was this a barrel only thing? Like a, the squad was all from the same barrel, like same area, basically. Well, a lot of us went to grammar school at a place called St. Mark's and St. Mark's, you know, it's still there in Cheapset Bay. And, uh, the skateboarders would skateboard in front of the St. Mark's church. And before we were skateboarding, we were BMXers. So it was kind of like the meeting of the BMXers and the skateboarders and the skateboarders kind of took these thrash metal kids under their wing and we're like thrash metal is over <laughs> you know it's like, yeah, like that's literally how it happened yeah that's yeah, kind of how it happened yeah that's how it happened said you're going to listen to this 
And one of the earliest things played for, for me was the breakdown demo. Actually, Holy shit. Which I mean, at the time was probably what within a, like a year or two of it coming out. No, that year in 87, oh, shit. So, it was so, <laughs> like so, late summer, early fall, 87. Yeah. So, uh, we had obviously car Carl on the show. Mm-hmm. And then when I was talking to him, you could get the record from, you could get the demo tape at the record store. Mm-hmm. But they never played a city show until their last show at CB's with that right. uniform choice. Until they obviously they came back and would redo it. But were you able to make it to that breakdown show? No, but that, all that was, these all these kids did though. The, oh, the, so the, you just missed yeah. you missed that first little bit. Uh-huh. Uh I did see breakdown in the summer of eighty eight, the volume two version of breakdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they the reform. Uh, with Rich from Sub Zero on guitar, this dude Larry on drums. And uh, one of the guys who would go on to be in Maximum Penalty and Lament uh, also, um, the, the second version, the, the Cause and More Trouble in 88 version. Yeah. That's the first version of Breakdown I saw. So uh, when you listen yeah. to, when you heard the Breakdown demo, it had to fucking shatter your idea because it sounds so much different than anything thrash metal, anything oh, yeah. Iron Maiden, you know, even, even by punk rock standards, you're kind of like, wait, what the fuck is this? Now I was I was a bass player then, you know, um, and the bass playing really stood out because that whole demo is the bass, like yeah. the bass is louder than the guitar, and I just thought it sounded really fucking cool. And uh, my friend Glenn Eaton uh, made me this mixtape with the breakdown demo, um, a few Agnostic Front songs, a few Crumb Suckers songs. Chromag's Age of Quarrel demo, not the album, the demo. The demo. Heard the demo first, even though the album was already out. Um, Sick of It All's seven inch, and War Zones. Don't forget the struggle. This all fit on one cassette. It was like yeah, absolutely, a, yeah, a ninety minute jam packed, nothing but New York hardcore tape that I still own that my buddy Glenn made for me, and that 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 wrapped it all up for heavy metal <laughs> for a little while at least. <laughs> Now, what which part came first? You going to CBs or was there anything close to home? Like, uh, were Lamores doing straight hardcore shows or still doing the metal mix at the time? I have such a weird trajectory. I saw a show in South Brooklyn. Me, Lamakia, and and Tom and a couple of us went. Um, we were freshmen. It was uh, very beginning of '88. Literally, like right now, thirty-five years ago, right now. We went to see Social Disorder play a church hall in Brooklyn by Coney Island Hospital. And that was our first hardcore experience, okay? Uh, a band called uh, Circle of Violence, random South Brooklyn band, and Social Disorder. Social Disorder, we were already fans of, actually. They had a demo out, like they had like, two demos out, actually. And they had like a name, you know, like I would see their stickers around, you know, um, and we really liked them. They had uh, the Agony demo had just come out back then. It was like uh, this really cool fucking demo, really obscure, great Brooklyn hardcore band that should be less obscure. Um, so that was it. And then in May of 88, I see my first, quote, real show at the Ritz, which was Bad Brains, Murphy's Law, Token Entry, Super Touch. So it's March 88, Social Disorder, and then May 88, Bad Brains. 
You've been to rock concerts though beforehand. Like you went to big concerts yet, or no? Was you was your first like live music experience? The more smaller shows. No, no rock concerts. It was this. Holy was shit, this. that's even fucking cooler. Yeah, no <laughs> rock concerts, no arena shows. I didn't see an arena show till 1990. So no. Uh, yeah, you, so you I, were you were born right in that church hall, man. That's fucking pretty awesome. much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny because. That ramp up after that church hall show leading up to the, the Ritz show was just like the explosion of mixtapes from friends with like seven seconds on it with, you know, like with more than just neocardcore, you know, like absorbing just so much other shit um, under the hardcore blanket. And it was just such a great time. Like it was just, I mean... I was so ready by the time I actually got into that show at the Ritz to be there, you know, and I had listened to Super Touches, uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, Crucial Chaos that that St. Patrick's Day, and they were opening the show. Um, I was already a fan of Token Entry because I had borrowed from Beneath the Streets from another friend. I was already into the Bad Brains because of another mixtape and Murphy's Law, same thing. I loved the first album. It was just like... It was just kind of meant to be, I guess, you know? I mean, especially at that time. I mean, Murphy's Law. They were, mm. There were so many New York hardcore bands that were so, getting bigger. And just the way everything. I mean, you you were into, you got to see Super Touch, which is crazy enough because that's like such a different band than everybody else. On the, yeah. On the oh, yeah, yeah. The time. And uh, they, uh, they, were, they hadn't even been Super Touch that long yet, I think. Yeah. Um, by the, at the beginning of 88. So, yeah, totally. Um, and token entry is still, you know, playing from beneath the streets. Jaybird comes out like that summer. Um, but you know, yeah, it was life changing shit, man. It was, it was, I was 14. I used John's birth certificate that said I was 16. And I guess I looked 16 when I was 14. It wasn't too big of a stretch. I was kind of tall, you know? Um, and you know, to the, to young listeners, all they asked you back then was like a maybe a random question about your ID to get in. And sometimes they didn't even do that. They just looked to make sure if the ID was real. And in in you went. So you had a 14-year-old in the building that night. So that was kind of wild. Well, I imagine you were probably not the only 14-year-old, though. No. Um, I actually think Sammy, you know, Sammy Siegler... Yep is my age and I'm positive he was probably at that show too at age 14 and who the hell else knows, you know, might have been uh, the youngster at that show. But I tell you, man, that was weird because I actually went with a group of friends and then we got separated (laughs) and the show was like sold out, like packed. And I could not find my friends for like, like an hour and change. And I was like, "Uh Oh, you know, I was like, fuck man. This sucks. And then I eventually found my friends. Now, with hindsight in mind, how do you look back on being 14 years old and now looking at like you grew up in this scene? Like, did you feel welcome? Did you feel scared? And you're, everyone has a different perspective. Looking back with hindsight, how like give us the description of like how young Mike was coming up into all this. Like, how did you feel? Did you feel like it was hard? Like, you know, give me some, some like, Obviously, you're going to look back with some hindsight in this. I'd like to hear your perspective. Honestly, it was scary. Uh, yeah, it was it was a little scary. But it felt good, and it felt better 
than Sheeps at Bay. You know what I'm saying? Like it felt, it felt right. It felt right to be there. You know, um, there were a lot of skinheads at shows back then, a lot of intimidating dudes, big dudes. I mean, New York back then you had like, you had Sunset, you had like Lower East Side crew. You even had like a, a Brooklyn skinhead crew back then. You had like, was that the junkyard? Of- what was that? The something like was it like the junkyard or whatever the hell? They oh well, it? there was well before that was Bash Brooklyn area skinheads. You had Bash, yeah, okay, you had Sunset, you had I mean yeah because this is this is eighty eight, so you know everybody is like in like prime scary mode, uh, you know, in my eyes, and yeah, there was a huge fight outside. <laughs> I remember that. I don't remember who or whatever, you know. Uh, but towards the end of the show, there was a big fight. I always, always remembered that one. And inside, I don't remember fights inside this particular show, but I do remember the pit was fucking awesome and wild. But I just kind of took it all in, you know. Do I think it was welcoming? Yes. Was it intimidating? Yes. You know, it was both. Now, I think you kind of need that surge of aggression and anxiety at least that's how it felt like for me. And the same thing, only we had um, at the metal shows were the Nazis in, in Philadelphia and the PA area. Mm-hmm. So like the hardcore scene was a little bit more physical violence on the floor, but you didn't have the anxiety of, is this when all the Nazis are going to sing how and crazy shit, you know, it was like, because the metal shows were all Nazis and the hardcore shows were a lot like what you were saying, like to kind of learn, Oh yeah, these guys are skinheads, but they're not the Nazi skinheads. Was interesting, right, especially because right. we were long hairs. We came straight from metal in a totally different neighborhood. I I really love the idea that, and and it's good that you said this, that it was welcoming because a lot mm-hmm. of times the stories are always in hindsight like this is so crazy, and they they focus on the Lower East Side. It's they focus on all the other things, but they don't mention a personal perspective, which is why I'm glad you gave it to us. Yeah, yeah. I mean. The thing is this, this is this is when New York Hardcore is starting to get bigger. It's it's not tremendous just yet, but it's getting there, you know? Like you could still get into a CB show if you show up. Yes, yes. Although I'll say this, um, June of 88, I go to my first CB show and it's a token entry headlining show, okay? Token entry and in your face. So I got to see token entry like twice in a, in a month and a half, which was awesome because they were one of my favorite bands. And that show was fucking packed. Um, Six and Violence was on it. Ever heard of Six and Violence? They're kind of like this jokey band from like the late 80s, like party hardcore. Yeah, it was Six and Violence, In Your Face, and Token Entry. And that show was fucking packed too for a bill that wasn't really that stacked. Uh, But I think it was because Token Entry was just ascending at that point, you know. So that show was fucking fun. As you're going to these shows, are you are you picking up things, whether it's like patches and or T-shirts and learning more? Like, are you absorbing all this and, and then coming back being like, I got to check out these bands? How exciting yeah, yeah. was that to be exposed to all that? That was great. At that at that token entry show, I bought a six dollar token entry shirt, uh, the white, you know, with the, the green arrow and the black yep. lettering the shirt was six dollars. And I bought that. That was awesome. Um I didn't have a lot of money back then because I wasn't working yet. I started working in 89 when I was like 15 going on 16. So I would just use like allowance money. And 
I would pick up demos here and there. I mean, in hindsight, I really wish there were some things that I was able to buy that I wasn't able to buy, but I was able to get that shirt. And then about a month later, still in the summer, I went to that breakdown show and I bought the breakdown causing more trouble in 88 shirt, which was also $6. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just hearing all these other bands and checking out all this other shit. And also at this time, I am, you know, coming a part of one band that wasn't even really a band, but managed to get on the new breed comp called direct approach. And I'm also starting, which was, I guess the first real band close call with uh, Tom Trippy and John LaMacchia. So all this is happening around the same time. When you started playing bass, it was always just like listening to music that you already had and try to play along or were you formally taught? Uh, I did take lessons for like a year and a half at this place on Sheepshead Bay Road called the, the Rock and Roll General Store. It was like this kind of metal rock instrument store that sold T-shirts and pins and stuff. And this guy, Frank, gave lessons and he taught me how to play bass and John and Tom how to play guitar. So we had some lessons. I, I wouldn't say years and years worth, but we had all of those beginner lessons where we, we did, you know, learn a thing or two, I would say. They learned a lot more than me because they actually could play like hell. I was an okay bass player. I was not a great bass player. So that's how I really learned how to initially play bass from taking these lessons from 86 to about maybe late 87. Yeah. When you, when you came up with a, to do the show, uh, the band direct approach, Mm-hmm. did you even have any idea of trying to play or was this like, I just want to do a band? Cause I know you said your brother did a, the, the rehearsals, but then we play <laughs> was your intention to do songs or was your intention to actually try to play some of these shows? Well, here's the thing with that band. Um, they were without a bass player. It was this guy Ray on vocals, who was a sunset skin. It was Chris Bozeth on guitar, who was also a sunset skin. And my buddy James Loud on drums. James Loud lived in Sheepshead Bay like me, about eight, nine blocks from me. And it just kind of happened where they, they they either didn't have a bassist or needed a bassist. And we had a few songs. And then one day while we were rehearsing in James Loud's basement in maybe early summer of 88, uh, Ray says, oh, there's going to be this compilation coming out. And we're going to be on it. And it's like, we are? Okay, awesome. Where are we going to record? We're going to record a Don Fury. I went, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we don't have to pay for it or anything. Um, We're just going to do two of our songs. And, yeah, and then it's going to come out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, at this point, Direct Approach has never played a show. And ultimately, we never even did play a show. That's how fast... That band and everything moved in that band. It was a band for like a summer and change that somehow, I think because Ray was friends with Chaka and Freddie Alva, who put out that comp, that's how we got on that comp. Isn't that hilarious? I never knew that. I, I Obviously, I know the comp. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> that's the band awesome. was the band. I mean, we were a real band. Like I like the kids sometimes say it wasn't a real band. We were a real band, but we never got to play a show. We broke up before we got to play a show. But we did manage to go to Don Fury and record 
for, to me, one of the, the best New York hardcore comps, the New Breed comp. So that's, oh, that's me at age 15. Yeah. Dude, that's fucking sick. I mean, what's cool about the Red Approach is you guys had like two songs on the comp and there was bands that only had one. I actually never even put two and two together that you were in that band, but <laughs> a lot of people have... don't know. Yeah, they don't know. I mean, it just says Mike or Mike S or something. Like we didn't have like a cool logo. Like it was just so hilarious. Like how, how it all kind of came together, and then it comes out. I think in January or '89, and I don't. I don't even manage to get a fucking copy of it. I was like, what the hell? You know, like it like sold out like so fast even back then that I wasn't even able to get a copy, and. um just weird, you know? And then Chris, of course, uh, you know, under a year later is the, one of the original guitarists of Marauder. He starts Marauder. And then I do close call for a little while and then I end up in confusion. So that's kind of the, the, the trajectory there, but close call was, was a real band. Is that Chris, the guitar player? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris Bozeff. He also oh. was the founding member of all Out war. So this is all right. This is a, you are now. We we had this conversation I think in person before, mm-hmm. and this is the this is the sidebar conversation to the Mike Scadano life. Mm-hmm. So, but you are first person witness can testify to this. Mm-hmm. Said this a million times to younger people. Without Chris, from I didn't know his last name was Bosef. So that's even cooler. Bosef, yeah. Um, Chris was able to form both all at war and Marauder. Mm-hmm. And to me, I've always said that person single-handedly have had the most direct impact on being in bands that would become very popular, that would metallicize. Yeah. And as the kids would say today, normalize metallic influence in hardcore. Like that one yes. guy through, through those two demos, cause he was on both the Marauder demo and the all at war demo. Uh, actually he is not on Marauder's demo. Um, but he wrote the songs. He 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 did have a hand in writing some of the earliest material. He was in the band from the f- formation in ninety to ninety one. Ninety one. Uh, he I believe he joined the military and moved away and ended up you know upstate and makes Mike score and that's how that starts. Um, but he is not on the ninety three uh, official Marauder demo. He I believe. Uh, I don't even think he's on that demo that they unearthed for that collection that came out. Cause that one is from 91. I think that is Anthony and Saab. Um, so yeah, he actually, there are no recordings with him, but he is a, has a hand in like the early songwriting of like the really early Marauder material, him and Vinny, the dr- uh, now, drummer. To take this, we're going to take this linear, linear step. I just want to talk about this for a second. Then we're going to jump back into, because this ties into a lot of the confusion stuff. Mm-hmm. When, when people look back, because I, I mean, you see it on your, you're on social media, you're on the internet. There is this wave of humans that consistently move the bar. You know, they'll, you know, they'll say like, oh, well, that wasn't really hardcore. It was metalcore. And then, you know, there's that argument, which is now, you know, that, that thing probably started as soon as a demo came out and went into right. zines and people talk shit. Mm-hmm. And then in the late nineties, you actually saw bands even add, more metallic influences in the hardcore or they came from hardcore bands, but their next band was more metallic and the scene itself was more open. Mm-hmm. And I've always said it ha- it started with the all out war Marauder in my mind. I can't think of anything earlier than 
the band like your band confusion or i mean and and um met did a great job with the first east coast assault doing this putting yeah, all these yeah. bands putting all these bands that kind of took a different more metallic approach to hardcore mm-hmm. but when you when you were there and you're hearing all war the, the all war that he was involved in and you're marauder did you as a metalhead even look at it as hardcore did you like what was your perspective seeing this did you realize you're looking at like oh shit this is like hardcore but more metal like what was your perspective then and then now if there's any changes that in your hindsight here's the thing confusion at marauder lament uh all come out in the same time like the same like summer 90 you know like that's like it's all happening at the same time okay um hardcore was getting heavier period okay so honestly we did kind of just look at ourselves in 90 91 as hardcore bands okay perhaps a bit later on we realized okay this is more metalcore, more metallic. You know what I'm saying? Because there's still quote unquote traditional hardcore happening, although not a lot in 90 and 91, not really. No, that was like the beginning of the split towards right, exactly. what you would now call um, more like the indie rock sound that would come from like stuff that I actually think Super Touch had a hand in kind of like helping that split begin. And obviously yep. Walter and the stuff that he was starting to work on. The thing is this, I, I just think that initially we're just, we're a modern hardcore band. We're a 1990 hardcore band. You know, this is what we sound like. But when you get to 91, I think that there's almost like a conscious decision to just get heavier and heavier and heavier. And maybe not even mind being called more of a metal band or playing with metal bands, but the hardcore heart is, is still kind of always there, you know, Um, as, as heavy as all these bands got, I think deep down, it was still being played by hardcore people, obviously. And I think a lot of the fans were still hardcore people and not necessarily metalheads. Confusion got lucky because we got to play on a lot of straight death metal bills. Yeah, and, I, I love that. I love the yeah. joke deep, deep in the confusion. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of take the mon- Mike Scadano like here's your snapshot of your thoughts in 1990 with all this stuff kind of popping up and it being so fresh. The thing is the more we got exposed to death metal and started playing with death metal bands, we almost so glad you said that. Yeah. We wanted to be called, we wanted to be called a death metal band by like 93, honestly. But Um, were you kicking it? Were you kicking it with those death metal guys that were friends with breakdown? I think it was like, the either the mortician or incantation dudes uh immolation and mortician were friends with them yeah yeah so Um, those guys were already kind of kicking around the scene at that time right oh yeah no they um it's funny the new york bands immolation incantation from jersey and mortician were from yonkers they they were all kicking it off around again like 90 91 um but they didn't they weren't like the marquee bands like you had at that point the bigger bands or you're in tombs, morbid angels, obituary, yep. aside. The guys in New York were just like right under them. And they kind of came to prominence as, as the years would pass. But they already had like these rabid New York fan bases, though, these bands, you know. Um, but 
the first death metal band we played with was Cannibal Corpse. Okay, like yeah. real death metal. It, was the that on the 92. Was that on the first record tour before they even dropped that record? Oh no, this is Tomb. This is right after Tomb of the Mutilated has come out. This okay, is, uh, okay. This is late '92, and I had already been listening to death metal for a while, and you know, almost everyone confusion was listening to death metal, barring Frank uh, Collins, our guitarist, um, who we eventually was. You know, we we actually kicked him out of the band because he didn't want to get heavier, which is a whole funny story into itself. Um, and we were like, you know, the hardcore bands that we kind of loved were gone. You know what I'm saying? Like, or Listen, they were maybe we stop or, this. Maybe we stop this and we go back to the very beginning confusion mm-hmm. because it'd be kind of easier to explain that transition. Yeah. When yeah, you okay. start a crit, when you start a tra- when you start a confusion. I should have started with this way, but I, I really wanted your take on the metalcore thing sure, before yeah. we get way lost in confusion. Mm-hmm. When you start a confusion, you had to have said, hey, we're going to take this in a more metallic direction. Or was that just something that just came naturally based on all of your interests? A little bit of both, because I remember um, the band played this infamous backyard show in New Jersey. It was September 1st, 1990. It was Confusion, first show, Social Decay from Jersey, mm-hmm. Marauder, Patterns, Lament, and Demise, okay? Fuck yeah. I was there. There's photographs from the show. Jamie Davis has a bunch of photographs from the show. Um, now, I watched Confusion. I liked it. I thought it was great, you know? Uh, I ended up in the band like two weeks later because the, the our drummer, Ralph, punched out the, the old bass player. They had some kind of weird fight. And they kicked him out of the band. So he was in the band for a very brief moment in time, this dude, Steve. And I ended up like auditioning and joining the band because I liked that one show that I saw. And I, you know, I got along really well with uh, Mike, the singer that I met that summer and Frank Collins, who I also met that summer. But as far as what we were sounding like back then, and you can hear it when the discography comes out, when you hear that, like the first demo, a lot of it sounds like outburst, actually. Um, it sounds like outburst. It sounds a little like breakdown, maybe. Um, it sounds like New York hardcore in like 89, 90, not youth crewy, but more on the harder side. Okay. That's what it sounds like. It's not super metal at all. The first demo called For the Force. It's not really that metal at all. I think it sounds like outburst, kind of almost unintentionally, honestly. Um, by the time we go in to do the second demo in 91, me and Mike Fried are listening to tons of death metal. Okay. Um, and Frank is listening to some death metal and it's maybe seeping in a little bit, you know, the death metal and maybe even some thrash, maybe some like creator and some Torah. Like we, we were definitely super into that, you know? Um, so in a way, it was kind of like natural, but at the same time, there was we weren't even hearing good new hardcore anymore, Joe. I got to be honest. Like all we were hearing was like this great new death metal that was coming out because the matinees had kind of stopped. And honestly, yeah, like, CBS was CBS was done at that time, and I think yeah, 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 uh, and 
the uh, what was the name of that venue? Uh, the ABC No Rio, and then stuff like Absolution and all that sort of kind of becoming the focus for New York hardcore. Right. Well, the Absolution was great. I actually got to see them. Like, no, twice. I mean they, they were, were sick. Awesome. They, they were a sick band, but like they didn't sound like your traditional uh, GB no, no. YOT Judge that kind of thing. Yeah, all that was done by the fall of '90 when we record our first demo. Dude, Sick of It All is like one of the only bands left standing. And Sheer Terror, but Sheer Terror are, you know, uh, like Just Can't Hate Enough is still like a big deal to us in Brooklyn. Everybody loves it. But like Sheer Terror and Sick of It All, probably one of the only two bands that are still functioning and left standing from the the glory era of of literally, say, 87 to 89. You know, everyone is gone. Yeah, so it makes sense why the, the, the field would be open to kind of change the direction of the music. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think we were probably influenced by Best Wishes also, uh, the second Chromex record. That fucking record, yeah. Which, actually, honestly... I should, I should actually ask you, do you think that they influenced hardcore or were they influenced the same way you guys were influenced to, to take it towards a more metallic sound? I think they wanted to take it to a more metallic sound. I think they were like, you know what? This heavy bad brains thing is cool, but you know, to me, I, it, it sounded like Megadeth. I was like, Jesus Christ! Like this sounds like like really good thrash metal meets the Chromags. Like I fucking loved it. Like you know, because I, I I still like thrash metal. You know, um, and the first time I got to see them was also that lineup. Like the Harley, you know, Paris, fucking like the, the Best Wishes era lineup was the first time I saw them. So I always kind of held that lineup in high regard too. But again, the matinees, the, the stopping of the matinees had, a, had an effect, I think, on us. But it also made the Brooklyn bands and the whole Brooklyn scene happen. I don't think the Brooklyn scene would have happened without the end of the matinees in Manhattan, Joe. That's definite you know, truth. How, how I know, obviously, you know, Pete had a big hand in helping AF with uh, writing and stuff that, you know, we've heard that how influential at the time was Pete before typo negative even started playing. Well, I would say all the, all the bands were fans of carnivore. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. retaliation was a big deal. Okay. Fucking right. Yeah. But again, by, by 90, you know, Carnivore is done and Repulsion demo has come out that March. Okay. Repulsion is playing shows all through 1990 and Repulsion is like awesome, but it's really weird. Like it's like, it's the weird mix of crossover, thrash, hardcore, doom and industrial and goth. Like it's like, nobody knows what the fuck that is. You know what I'm saying? But everybody kind of likes it, but nobody could kind of put their finger on it. Um, But I think just the success of it, was influential to pretty much everybody in Brooklyn. I mean, everybody aspired to kind of be carnivore or be like, you know what I'm saying? Be repulsion and be like this band that everybody kind of came out to see, you know? Um, it, but the, the interesting transition period of like the repulsion year and change into the birth of typo negative was interesting because they played with, you know, hardcore bands and these weird shows and they were kind of building a, a new animal there, you know, because it wasn't really, it wasn't carnivore. Although at every show they would still do race war and Jesus Hitler. So it was kind of, kind of funny. They had their foot in the past for a while until they completely stopped doing those songs. 
Yeah, I used to have a live recording from like a MP3 off the internet where it was repulsion, but they were still doing the carnivore stuff. Yeah, they always did that. those two, mm-hmm. especially the early shows. So it's just a weird time. I mean, you have a, a lot of bands are kind of forming and shows are happening at this place, the Crazy Country Club. Shows are happening at Lamore. Like Lamore is starting to let hardcore bands onto, you know, metal headliners and maybe the occasional Sunday show of hardcore at Lemoore, which always didn't really do very well because people only wanted to go there on a Friday or Saturday. Um, Was Biohazard starting to do the Biohazard? Yeah. Yeah. There, I can't leave them out of the story, honestly, because I just, yeah, I have a whole list of uh, notes that I'm like been looking at, like the, as you're going with your conversation to add into it. Yeah. They, so they form at 88 and by 89, they're, they're headlining Lemoore. Like, they were a big Brooklyn sensation. Biohazard never took off in the CBs scene. I think they played CBs twice and they didn't go over. So they kind of stuck with Lamore. Like they, they were a truly a Brooklyn band, honestly, and like a Brooklyn phenomena for a while until the first LP dropped. After the first album comes out in like 90, they started to draw more people in Manhattan and spread out. But for a while, they were like a Brooklyn, like, band straight up you know um one other thought before we get past the the end of the 80s and then the 90s because you and you had actually mentioned it with the sheer terror record how much do you think if any blake and his like dirgy so, like heavier slow parts and sheer terror do you think that had any influence on any uh new york hardcore bands or new york bands that come after that because to me that's really is what makes that specific record stand out because you have all that fast skinheads, you know, all the usual Paulie stuff, but in that those darker, slow moments and them riffs, you hear Blake and the stuff that he was listening, which is honestly completely metallic. Oh yeah. No, no. hundred percent. Sheer Terror was always popular in Brooklyn. They played a lot of Lamore shows. They were one of the few bands that did the, the CB matinee or Friday, Saturday night at Lamore thing with no problem. They had people that, you know, in, in both parts of the fucking city coming to see them. Also, they had band members that were from Brooklyn. Blake was a Brooklyn guy, so that obviously helped. Um, so, yes, they were definitely influential on Confusion, on Marauder, on even Life of Agony. Uh, 100% influential. Um, maybe even more so than, than Biohazard for, for some of us. Um, because, like, I think it mattered that, like, I don't know. We were really taken by like the the city bands, quote unquote, the, the bands who play the CBs matinees, because that that's where I kind of went to for over a year before I went to Lemoore. I didn't even set foot in Lemoore until May of 89 it, with a year of the Ritz and CB shows under my belt. And the first show I saw at Lemoore was First Order, Social Disorder and Biohazard. So and it was like, oh, OK. You know, Brooklyn is fucking great, too, you know, because I was spending all my time in Manhattan. And, you know, it was then right after that, it's like country club shows happen a little later. And the Brooklyn thing kind of builds like around that time. Now, to step into the confusion, birth and all that, Mm -hmm. where where did its inception begin? Does it hang out in a conversation and, hey, I can play this and you can play that? Or were you recruited to join something that was already starting? 
Um, it was in the summer of 1990. I was hanging out a lot with like Sean Dixon and, you know, I went to high school with Sean and love, I love, I love SD. Oh, I saw him at Sean that. I, saw him at the, I just saw him at that killing time breakdown thing for rich. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Years. He's one of my oldest friends. Uh, there was this, this park in park slope called construction. I don't know what the real name of the park was, but that was the name of it. And all of us, you know, Brooklyn, like, you know, Sheeps at Bay kids would go up there to hang out. Sorry. Uh, I don't know no why problem. that went, happened. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's okay. We would all go to hang out there, like me and Sean Dixon and, and Les and the Patterns guys, Marauder guys. We'd all hang out there. And I was introduced to Mike Freed, the confusion singer, possibly from Sean Dixon, to be honest. Um, and that's kind of where it began. And he told me about his band that he had called Confusion. And I met Frank Collins, who also was hanging out there then, the guitar player. I didn't meet Ralph yet, the drummer. Um, the band was in its you know infancy stages. They had a bassist, again, who I did not really meet. Um, I don't think I heard the band until I went to that show in Jersey, that backyard show in New Jersey. Right you know, I don't know, a month after meeting all these guys, honestly. And I was like, oh shit, this is awesome. And I was like blown away by Mike's voice and the fact that, you know, he's a quadriplegic belting out fucking hardcore, you know, metal vocals like a motherfucker. I was just so fucking floored by that, you know? But honestly, back then, Mike was, you know, everywhere. Like any show, anytime hanging out, like... He didn't let anything stop him from anything back then. Like if you could, if you, you know, to be very honest, like Mike was hanging out all night. He could out drink people and out smoke people. And just like, he was just like a force of nature, you know? And I was like drawn to like hanging out with him and all those people over there. And I, and that's pretty much how it started. And I, it's funny. I mean, it's, it, it's been whatever, 30 plus years. Like I don't, I don't remember what happened to that first confusion basis exactly well but i'm glad something did happen because i joined the band right after that <laughs> now i've also seen the term death core being thrown at confusion's uh, foot mm-hmm. do you think that lands well or do you think that's just like the the hindsight sticking in and being like oh yeah well because of this or where 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 do you where does that land and how do you feel about that being put to you guys i'm okay with it because back then it, it meant something cool. Completely honestly. different. Yeah. yeah. Like me and Rich O'Brien Love were talking about it. Rich from, from Darkside, uh, one of my best friends for over 30 years. Um, it's funny. Rich actually put that phrase on the second Darkside demo, I think. It actually says New York Deathcore somewhere. Not the first demo, on the second demo. But right around, right before that, we were kind of both kicking that phrase around, New York Deathcore, in describing our bands. Um, I don't know who said it first. I don't know, you know, who. But I do know Darkside put it out on that demo first. Um, but we were putting it on, like, flyers, and I would say it in interviews, you know, because it was a legit mix of those two genres, neo-hardcore and death metal. Uh, it was our two favorite kinds of music. 
And it was the two things we cared about the most in life. You know, it fucking fit perfectly. Um, I know it means something else now, but what's weird is that sometimes I'll hear it apply to a band, uh, a modern band. And I'll be like, yeah, this, this fucking actually sounds like deathcore. And then I'll hear it apply to another band. And I'll, I'll be like, not only do I not hear any death metal in this, I don't even hear any hardcore in this. So somewhere along the way, that phrase got kind of crazy. Would you agree? Uh, listen, I, I, since you listen, I hate the, the theft of the, the suffix core on anything mm. that doesn't have anything to do with hardcore. Right. I, I espouse and just dis- and despise it. I don't want anybody to even bring it up to me. Oh, this is like more. No, 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 no. It's hardcore or it's pop. And honestly, some of this death core t- in modern t- parlance mm-hmm. is metallic pop music mm, yeah. being sold as death core. It has nothing to do with anything underground. And it's, it's, it's completely bizarre. And at the time when I would find hardcore, the, the people that you mentioned, like Jamie Davis and all that, were big in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as older guys, they were like, you got to check out Confusion. And, you know, I lived right in Philadelphia. So we were going downtown to South Street. I got my hands on the amazing uh, East Coast Assault Comp. That mm, definitely yeah. helped. You know, like, so these kind of things were very early on. And I came from just like the same progression that you did. Only I was I was younger in the sense where, Thrash was at its high point before I even found it. Like, you know, I was seven years old when yeah, Master yeah. of Puppets came out. So yeah. like in 1990 and 91, the neighborhood was so bad. My mom, who had been doing shows in our neighborhood, like hair metal stuff. And I think she did she did a nuclear assault show with the local band Abolish. And I went mm. to that. But she allowed me to go to an all-ages club just outside the city and they were the ones booking the cannibal corpses. They mm. were the ones who had death metal matinee. So that was like a big exposure to, cause I, I, I had been at CAC DC. I see the ton of rock concerts, but my first all ages shows were more death metal. And so yeah. hearing it, it, a confusion, hearing mm-hmm. confusion as a teenager with long hair, finding hardcore, I'm like, wait, there's also like a metallic heart. Like it was <laughs> fucking me up. You know, it was a lot to, to yeah, no, know. totally, totally. I mean, Bands were breaking new ground in 92, 93. I mean, aside from what, say, us and Marauder were doing, you, you had you had Starkweather in Philadelphia, which I, mean, I just recently watched the, one of their sets uh, on YouTube at the Crazy Country Club from 93, 30 fucking years ago. And it, it watches like it's something brand new and exciting and it's 30 years old. Like their vibe and like Rennie's stage presence – and the riffs and everything. I mean, Jesus Christ, like they were so ahead of everybody else. They were miles, miles away, I think, from even their contemporaries. And like that's a band in particular from the whole era of, of where Confusion was that I think should have been 30 times bigger, should be 30 times more regarded. And it's just like, just a perfect fucking band at that point you know it's just like this marriage of of this vicious metal with this kind of hardcore sensibility you know and it's just amazing to just kind of go back and watch their their early 90s shows and it's just such a fucking talented band and then you had like we had our friends in baltimore next step up who got us our first show 
in Baltimore. And this is a funny story. It was January 93, 30 years ago. We played Baltimore for the first time at this youth center, Bel Air Youth Center. And a band called Corpse Grinder is the opening band. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was George Fisher's band opened the show. George from, from Cannibal Corpse. So I got to play a show with the pre-Cannibal Corpse, pre-monstrosity George yeah. Fisher in his hometown. So, yeah, and uh, JR has the flyer for it. JR from Next Step Up, he's, uh, he's posted it. Um, and it's funny because I always, like, I remember a lot about that show because the show was a fucking zoo. It was, like, packed and it was freezing cold. And I remember we, we like, we got there kind of late and we had to, you know, get all of our shit ready. And like, Corpse Grinder is playing and I caught a little bit of them. And it's just wild, like, to think that, you know, that that guy went on to be literally, like, the, the king of, of death metal, you know? But I got to play a youth center show with him 30 years ago, so that's kind of cool. Greg Daly, who is the uh, This Is Hardcore day-to-day, manages the stuff, pays the bands, keeps everything in order. Mm-hmm. He is a tour manager for various metal bands. And he called me one night because Corpse Grinder was freaking out listening to you today. <laughs> Judge, bold. He's like a super hardcore dude. And he's oh, like, yeah. dude, he fucking knows everything. It's, it's, a, it's a great small world. And something that I, I'm glad that we're talking about on this podcast, because obviously this is this hardcore podcast. People have had this ability in, since the time where you're talking about confusion. In 30 years, everyone's compartmentalized death metal. They've can, you know, now there's a perfect little boutique metalcore pop world. Right. People don't realize that in the inception, like death metal had to play alongside with hardcore bands yeah. because those were the smaller bands in that underground. And the only way for the two to link up was, oh, you're playing Lemores. Oh, we're playing Lemores too. Oh, let's let's do this together. And I'd really yeah. love for you to touch on the fact that it wasn't this surprising, like avant-garde, like, oh man, it's crazy. It was like it made sense for everybody. Like when we when we played with Cannibal Corpse at Lamore in '92, the other opening band on it was another Brooklyn hardcore band, Judgment Day, because Fuck yeah. and there was no other death metal bands on the show. I think there was another hardcore band on that show, but it was with Cannibal Corpse. Um, we did a show with uh, Cancer and Disincarnate, and Nobody's Perfect was on the show with us, and it was just it was just <laughs> kind of it was these mixed kind of bills because that's just how it was, you know, in, in the early '90s. Um, it wasn't super separate as it would go on to be. But what's funny though, is that I think now though, Joe, death metal, young death metal kids and young hardcore kids do like each other's music more now than in a long time, I think, because I go to these shows and I see a a lot of, of like, you know, hardcore kids at the death metal show and pending on the death metal show, a lot of, you know, like vice versa, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's an influx of people who, are from hardcore who started death metal bands. I th- there's obviously the Sansuga box, 200 stab wounds. Yep, yep. You know, there, um, I mean, uh, my favorite of all of them has been that frozen soul band, but I don't, yeah, I don't even awesome. call them kids. Like I think frozen soul <laughs> probably in camp and encapsulate pure death metal. The best. I think they're like the, yeah. And it's, and it's not a diss to the, to the other death metal bands going on. Um, but I think frozen soul to me, if I heard them when I was 12 years old, I'd be like, this is the fucking cool. Like, you know, like that's the coolest. And it's a new thing to these kids now, mm-hmm. but they also, because they're young, they don't realize like this shit's been going on since the beginning of these bands playing 
because the metal scene wasn't that big and the hardcore scene wasn't that big for these bands. Right. So it was no, the exactly. easiest way to, it was the easiest way for a room guy who's booking the hall or the room to pack the fucking house, you know? Yeah. Frozen soul is great. They, they sound kind of, they sound a lot like bow thrower and, and there is no more bow thrower. So that fills a nice little void, you know, but, but when you see them live, they're, they're to me, they're quite different than bow thrower. They have like this youthful kind of energy and, Definitely a little bit of like the Swedish uh, death metal vibe too going on. Um, but yeah, they're a great band. I mean, I listen to tons of new death metal and new black metal. And, Did you and like within... that tribal gaze band? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you call it? I haven't seen them live yet though, but I do like They them. played like the church record. and me, Chris, and Bob were at the at the table in the steps above before you walk in. And it's an opening band. So we're like, all right. And we're not like, we're not poking our heads in. And I hear a riff. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, so we were in the side going, damn, that fu-, like that, that band fucking rips. If you haven't get yeah. a chance to check them out, tribal gaze was fucking awesome on uh maggot stomp, which is a, a great fucking, you know, new death metal label. Um, I have a bunch of maggot stomp shit I'm looking at right now, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just an exciting time, honestly. Um, and, and for h- hardcore kind of taking the hit that it took, paving the way for like me and Mike and Mike, my other guitar, uh, guitar player, Mike Price to just kind of, you know, get sucked up by like death metal because it just kind of spoke to us. Honestly, we always liked shit that was heavy and intense and the next level of intensity. And, you know, honestly, I just think it it suited us. You know, I don't think if we were just going to play like tired, hardcore riffs, nobody would have given a fuck about this band. Honestly, like if we were to just, been just another kind of throwaway band from that era, you know? I think it just, it really kind of like set us apart, but it, it, it did come to us naturally. We, we, we love death metal, you know? Um, and it's just kind of weird because we did still play quite a few straight quote hardcore shows too at that time. Um, and I think some people might've scratched our head, their heads at some of the stuff we did, but then we had some people who fucking really got it. You know, it was kind of a mix, mixed bag. Was there ever an instance that because of Mike's handicaps that he was ever not accosted or jostled or anything, but like, do you think there was ever a moment where his presence on stage brought a negative effect to the band or were people always supportive? Like, holy fuck, here's this guy on stage doing this and his vocals are demonic at, at, at the at the at the lowest level demonic i mean he's got hmm. one of the coolest voices i think in the history of new york hardcore honestly here's what i think i think they would see the band roll up you know um i had long hair and frank had long hair mike price had short hair and we had our singer who come up on stage on crutches and i think nine times out of ten they had no idea what to expect okay then the band gets going and that's when it's like, holy shit. You know what I'm saying? I think what we did was we shocked the hell out of people in the best way. Yeah, that's what I, you know, we we took people by surprise and people never forgot it. Like, you know, especially when we, we were on and we had like a really good fucking show. Um, you know, I, I think it was the element of surprise. I don't think anyone ever walked away being like, Oh man, what's up with that singer? You know, like I think they kind of never forgot him visually and never forgot him sonically and hopefully never forgot the band sonically, you know? 
ever since the first thing I heard, his guys still put him in the top. I mean, even even later on, which we'll get to, with the opening, a call for unity is his voice. Like basically the yeah. opening riff, and it's you know for that storm the wall song. Um, a big part of hardcore, especially at that time, was letter writing, pen paling, r- trading. Were you involved in that before the band, or the band is that where you started getting involved with that? Like people reaching out to you, were you reaching out to people, or yeah, I tell you, man. I was always involved in it. It was either my address or Frank's address on, on everything back then. And then at some point it became my address. My address was on East Coast Assault. And I have to say, I got to give you know my props to, to Jeff Met uh, for getting us on that comp because that comp really like got us out there, man. Like really, like I got so many letters from that comp because that comp only had addresses on it. When you look at it, yeah. when you look at the insert, you know, um, not much by way of, of a layout on that thing, but I got so much mail from everywhere because of that comp, to be honest. Uh, you know, Japan, Europe, all over America. Um, so, yeah, I handled all of that. I was a, a good letter writer. I wrote back to everybody. Um, that was how my initial correspondence with Rennie began as like pen pals because Rennie saw Confusion play the first show we ever did at Lamore was like this, like battle of the bands thing. And I think a friend of his band from Philly was on the show and that him and Todd went to that show and they wound up seeing confusion and they were like blowing the fuck away. And that began the friendship. Uh, that was like, uh, I think the spring of 91. Uh, we didn't get Starkweather into Brooklyn until April of 92, but that whole year, all me and Rennie did, was either write letters or get talk on the phone. And it was just like this really fucking crazy, you know, primitive time back then. You know, he would make me tapes of bands. Like he was also into death metal too and stuff. And um, like, I'll never forget when they, they rolled up the crazy country club and, you know, I walk up to the van, they open the van. I remember they were blasting exhorter. And I remember, I remember that like things you just remember, you know, like these, these little memories, you know? And I was like, these guys are the coolest, you know, like they're fucking playing exhorter, getting hyped up for their set, you know? Um, it's just, again, I think some people will shit on the early nineties, you know, I'm sure you might've heard that over the years or shit on, on certain periods of time, but yeah, I was around from like 88, 89, you name a CB's band. I saw them. But I was I was living a great time between 90 and 94, too. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was a fucking awesome time because I was playing and performing and, and less of a fan, but more of like an active participant. My first few years in hardcore, I was played a few shows. You know, I was more the fan, you know? I mean, I'm always the fan, but when I started to become the musician and the person who booked shows... Because me and Kevin Judgment, they booked the shows at the country club back then. And, you know, just being an active part of it, it just really like, you know, it fucking changes your whole life, Joe. I mean, you you know what I'm saying. I I always think of um, the fact that people like us, we grew up in cities. We could have never left our neighborhoods. Instead, we played music. It took us everywhere you were writing letters that would eventually get your record put out in another country, man. Think about yeah, that. Yeah, that's how I met Stefan from from Hardway. Uh, Stefan from Kickback, he put out the Confusion 7-inch. Um, 
I can't remember how he found us. I, I don't. I mean, he knows, but uh, there, it definitely involved letters initially. Uh, he probably heard the For the Force demo and the Distorted Vision demo, and he was like, you know, I want to put out your seven inch, you know, and. We recorded at the infamous Fastlane Studios, uh, the Taste of Hate EP, which is where everybody rehearsed, you know, Biohazard, Life of Agony, all like, you know, Nobody's Perfect and Lament. Like, you know, everybody kind of went there at one point. Um, And Bobby Hamble of Biohazard co-produced our 7-inch. A lot of people don't even know that. His name is, is in the credits, but it's just something that a lot of people just don't realize. He was there, uh, you know, the whole time when we were making it. And um, what's really funny about that seven inch is that it's really long and we were kind of dumb and young and didn't realize how long our songs were. So early frost, the whole version is not on the seven inch. Like it ends, but the song is not over. If you listen to the song early frost. So when the compilation comes out, the discography, you'll finally hear the end of the song. So it's kind of funny. Before we roll out of that, I just want to make a touch on this. The shit that he put out is so weird because it's like disciplinary action, mm-hmm. confusion. Mm-hmm. Then he does the alt war seven. It's the destined to burn. Mm-hmm. Then he does the bulldoze record. You know, it's like, here's, here's a guy, you know, all the way across the ocean, putting out stuff that was very viable to the kids who were going to shows at the time. But exactly what you said about hardcore at the time, there wasn't anything American that besides the beginning of a two damn hype at the time, he was just doing comps. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have anything bigger at the, at the stage. There wasn't really something set up. Like there was no revelation. Victory wasn't even a thing yet. No. So there wasn't something that it was, was going to support time. us. Yeah. It was a very weird time. And it was very, Again, it was it wasn't so much about Manhattan then; it was about Brooklyn then. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, you know, things were happening. Things were being very compart compartmentalized. I don't know if I'm using that term correctly. Yeah. Um, Harco was not big in '92, '93, '94. It was not. No, um, I mean, do you were you a fan of the One Voice record that came out around that time? I was not a fan of the One Voice record. I thought I love when, I love when someone cool. has a contrary opinion. I was that not. was the first that was the first AF record that came out as I was cognizant of it. So I was mm-hmm. like, but I didn't. I thought it was supposed to be like a punk band. But I mean, as a long hair, I'm like, oh fuck, okay, I understand this. I I was a victim in pain, cause for alarm, liberty justice guy, and when I heard that, I went, hmm, no, I don't really like this 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 style shift too much. You know, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I like it more now, but then, yeah. no, I did not like it. I, I was also in 92, I, the, the only hardcore I probably really was super appreciating was the ones being made by my friends locally, you know? Yeah. And probably sick of it all and sheer terror. Like I felt like everybody else had just gone over a cliff or just went in a very weird direction. But judge was gone. Youth today was gone. I didn't really like shelter yet. In 92 wasn't not my thing. They were also um, that they were also really weird. Krishna. They weren't really yeah, fully yeah. even like a full heart. Like that first record or so wasn't even like a great 
hardcore record. I don't even know if they play some of them first songs anymore. Right. Everything was just so weird. And in 92, man, I, death metal city. It was just death metal, death metal, death metal. And um, so, yeah, I wasn't into it. It took me a long time to kind of appreciate that record, actually. Yeah. But it's a, it's a is it a weird time for you looking back, seeing that you were there at the end of one era, which was hardcore, mm-hmm. then seeing the, the death metal scene, and then all of a sudden the roadrunner investment in the life of agonies yeah. in the mad balls in weird. shelters. And then there's a whole book. You should check out a guy who writes for Philadelphia. Dan Ozzy wrote a book called sellout and he touches a little bit. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does touch a little bit, but he does, it's not, um, it's, he doesn't go super deep into the hardcore section, but that was when the majors actually started taking a look at all these smaller underground scenes. But you had to have had some kind of like, wait, what the fuck? Because all of a sudden New York city had, Tons of m- small new labels funded by majors in these independents, like the way Maximum Penalty was getting records put out. Like all of a sudden, New York hardcore had been dormant. Like, as you said, like there wasn't these records in four or five years after the end of, not even four, you guys broke up in 94. By 95, 96, all these New York hardcore, hardcore bands. Hardcore is back. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump out of that, but I thought culturally it had to be interesting for you mm-hmm. to see it go, slowly die. And then rise back in another form. It was wild. Honestly, it was very wild. Like, I know for, like, we were gigging with Life Agony a lot then. And I know that, like, Typo had a lot to do with them finally getting on Roadrunner. Like, they, they, you know, they were like, check these guys out. Check these guys out. Check these guys out. You know, uh, Sal played drums on River Runs Red. Sal was still in Typo when he played drums on that record. Um... But what ended up happening was that, you know, that chance they took fucking paid off because River Runs Red did very well. And Life of Agony were, went from being a big Brooklyn band to being a big New York City band. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they, they put in a lot of work, man. They really did, you know? Um, I mean, I remember we did, a, like, a show with them in, in Massachusetts uh, with, like, Starkweather at the Middle East. And it was like, you know, it was confusion, Starkweather, Life of Agony. And there's like hardly anybody there. You know, if you did that show today, it would be probably a different story. It was in the smaller room at the Middle East. Um, it's funny. That was the show where I met Jonah from Only Witness, like at that show. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I've been friends with him ever since. Um, again, it's all these bands that are a part of the very odd 99, I'll call it 90, era of hardcore, which was not big. And everybody kind of knew everybody. You know, you have Next Step Up, you have All At War, you have Confusion, you have Marauder, you have Only Witness, you have Starkweather. Um, all these bands have played shows together. Life of Agony is a part of this. But Life of Agony ascends. You know what I'm saying? Like, they get on Roadrunner, and they get the album out in 93, you know? Which is pretty early in that, in that time period. However, by 95... Life of Agony are not even playing with hardcore bands anymore. The Ugly Record, they're oh, they, they kind of yeah, they leave the hardcore scene entirely behind, and you know, and it was like embarrassing. Yeah, oh yeah, it was fucking, it was fucking embarrassing. I say this to the young kids because I had that bitter moment. I got lucky to see the beginning of what would happen when River Runs Red came out, mm-hmm. and I remember sitting there as they were opening for Marilyn Manson, and they were playing with Clutch. Mm-hmm. in philadelphia and i was just like i this is even the same band and i always tell people that when 
Joey, the guy from Souls of Zero, came back and joined the band. That was the first glimmer of like them touching back on what was the better part of the band because it just went so far down. Yeah, That's they wanted opinion. to be a rock band, and they 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 were they were a rock band for a long time. I mean, um, but I do think you know what I mean. I think the hardcore scene once they they love a certain record or a certain band, they 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 kind of keep that love. You know what I'm saying? I feel like a lot of bands who go away come back. Joe, you know what I'm saying? When I oh, say I mean, that? we just we just did life of <laughs> agony. We just did life of agony at the uh, Keystone Jam. Mm, oh yeah, and they played after they played one of the most fantastic sets. Yeah, and then Bob had them. Bob had them at FYA, and they outdid their performance at Keystone. So they still have it. I mean, they're right now on tour with Sick of It All, so it's not taken away from them. No, but I do no. feel that there was a large carrot hung in front of all these independent bands, saying, "If you just do this, you're going to get bigger and bigger." And by '98 those chords were cut on so many, I, you know, I had Tim yeah. from uh, VOD on it. Obviously Manball had shifted out from 98 over mm. to epitaph after that, you know, like there was a lot of New York hardcore that thought, Oh, we're all going to, I mean, H2O is another example. Oh yeah. I, at the end of the nineties, I was working at, uh, in Met's basement for two damn hype cord me mm-hmm. and Jamie Davis. And I had to take quotes about the new H2O record being on a major. And Paulie mm-hmm. said, didn't you listen? Didn't you learn from me? They call it Music City of of America, or Music Cemetery of America, for a reason, and oh, it, it's just it's, it's it's indicative of just the shift and change where New York hardcore was seen as a viable big commercial product, and very few of them really reached that bigger level, if any, financially for like a label, like a huge major to carry them on. I want to say, um, as far as Philly is concerned, with confusion. Uh, we played Philly, technically. Jamie's house. Yes, one time we played with, uh, let's see, with Dare Defy and Starkweather in September of 92 at that house where everybody, it was like this party house, okay? Um, I think, did Throne of Corruption play too? I, I can't remember. Probably, because they were still playing then. Yeah, I know Dare Defy played and Starkweather played and Confusion played. And I was 19 and we all, we, it was like two or three cars from fucking Brooklyn. We all went up to the show and wow, dude, it was wild. Like I, I, I remember I, I was not, a, I'm not a big pot smoker. Like I don't smoke pot, but I smoked pot that night and I got like really like paranoid. Like it was just like this wild party night. <laughs> they might, have, they might man, have put dust know? in that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, let's be honest. I yeah. mean, there's a reason why that next comp was called the uh, Philly dust crew. Exactly. Um, <laughs> That was just a really wild night. And then we played in Pennsylvania at the Unisound in Hell May yeah. of 93 with SWAT and Biohazard. That was awesome. Um, yeah, that Biohazard was Kevin and uh, Chris Mahmood. Uh-huh. Uh, that was really fun because Evan got us on that show. Evan called me up and got us on that show. That's how we got on that show. It was a Thursday night and Evan hooked it up. And yeah, I never forgot that. That was really cool. Yeah, Confusion and Demise played in Reading, Pennsylvania, which to me is like one of the coolest things. I'm trying to remember when that was Reading. No, wow. no, just in general. You guys both both bands. Played. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In oh, no. general, here's here's Reading, Pennsylvania. It's Jake. He's a really weird guy. He's still <laughs> around. I talked to him on the telephone a few times about coming on the podcast. Oh wow. And he and he still remembers every band that came through. Like oh yeah, these guys stayed on the ramp. And he's got great stories. I just can't get to him because of COVID. Mm. He was very concerned. So we're gonna get link up. But it's amazing to me to see that even 
even then Pennsylvania hardcore had a big impact on helping New York hardcore bands get out here. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, we didn't know what to expect. Cause I remember it was like a Thursday. We were like, okay, fuck it. I mean, we haven't bought has the guys to show. We're playing the show, but it was packed, dude. I remember that. And we had, we had the seven inch for sale. We sold a bunch of the seven inch at that show. Um, you know, just some cool random memories, you know? Um, but like, I, I wish we'd got to play Philly a little more, especially uh, around the time that the comp comes out in the, it was like spring of 93, uh, East coast assault. I know Met tried to book some big show in Philly that never happened. And then he tried to book a big show in Lamore that ended up never happening. There are two great flyers that exist for East coast assault record release shows for shows that did not happen. Unfortunately. <laughs> so, Looking, looking into the reason why you guys uh, were um, slowly turning the band, you know, down, like getting towards mm-hmm. the end, were you guys just not able to do more with the band? What was the what was the the reasoning for the the final breakup until you guys did that the, the benefit show? The thing is this: um, the original guitarist Frank Collins, who passed away in two thousand two. Um, you know, who, who started the band with Mike Freed. He, we actually kicked him out in late 92 because he wanted us to go like to stay hardcore and be more of a hardcore band. And the rest of us unanimously did not want to do that. We wanted to play in a more death metal style, all the new music we were writing, um, which you can hear and like the like live, you know, bootlegs or whatever that we were playing are definitely in a more death metal direction. Um, so there was a parting of ways there. And for a little while, it was just a four piece confusion with the three mics and Ralph on drums. Uh, by the summer of 93, we get Pete Malucci, uh, who is our second guitarist in the band. Mike Price quits at the end of 93. We play this huge Christmas Day show with Warzone and Life of Agony at Lemoore. Like Life of Agony hooked us up again at Lemoore on Christmas night, 93. Sold out like Lemoore, okay? Uh, a show I think somewhere on YouTube is really good show for us. But for some reason, Mike Price, a guy who wrote a lot of the great shit for the band, quits, doesn't want to do it anymore. That's like, okay. So we close out, well, you know, we, we close out all of 94 as a four piece with me, Pete, Mike Freed, and Ralph. We play a lot of shows. We go to uh, Maryland a few times. We play this show with, uh, Dark Side and uh, Drown, who went on to be One King Down in Upstate. Like, we, we played a lot in 94. Um, in the summer, Mike Pry- Freed reveals that he's going to go to college in Florida. And it's like, oh, okay, well, wh- what's the band going to do? And then Mike is like, you know what? Maybe th- this should be it. You know, like, we're going to we'll play the shows that we have booked. And then when I come back, you know, for Christmas break, we'll, we'll, we'll do a final show in Brooklyn and call it a day. I think, honestly, like Mike Price leaving at that end of 93, that Christmas show, really took a hit in the band, honestly, because he was like a driving creative force, you know, as much of like a lot of times we all butted heads and fought because the band honestly would argue a lot with each other. And we had a lot of problems. Like a lot of the band was into smoking pot and I was not. And I felt like, you know, I was like in one camp by myself and they were in another camp. Um, 
me and Pete were really focused and got along. But I think, I don't know, it just seemed like a good time to wind down, despite the fact, dude, that we hadn't recorded since since the one song we recorded in 93, the song Storm the Walls. Um, we had all these really cool songs that, I remember one of the guys in Next Step Up had a record label and he wanted to put it out on his label. But that ended up not happening. And then for a hot minute, we had this manager, Tom Pasquale, who booked a lot of the death metal shows in New York. He was trying to get assigned to the label JL America. I don't know if you ever heard of that label. Yes, yes. Yeah. Confusion on another earth was on JL America, but unfortunately that did not happen either. Um, we were going to do a full length on JL America, but it, it did not come to pass. Imagine if that would have happened. That would have been pretty cool. Um, so it's like, okay, Mike's going to Florida. And I am like, I kind of don't want to play bass anymore. I want to sing. I want to sing in a band. And it's like, we all agree. Okay, we'll play a final show. Um, and the, the final show was uh, the first week of December of 94 at Lamore opening for Deicide. And we had opened for Deicide the year prior in 93, which was one of the best fucking shows we ever played at Lamore. And we thought it was like a perfect kind of fitting ending to play with Deicide one more time at Lamore in Brooklyn, um, you know, to kind of cap it off. And that ended up being, you know, truly the last show for the band in its uh, original form. So it was a combination of like Mike going to Was college. that part of the Legion tour or was that right when the record, the new record came out? Oh, did, that, is after, that is after Legion and before Once Upon the Cross. It was like this, uh, might've even been like a, a string of Just there's a tour. Yeah, DSI Legion uh, was the first record I was exposed to by them. That mm -hmm. was the era where I was getting really into death metal. I remember seeing them and just being fucking blown away. Yeah, they played Lamore that uh, in '92 for that record with Cancer, Demolition Hammer, and Marauder. I got to open that one. I was Jesus. Like, oh, <laughs> I know we wanted that show so bad, but Marauder got that show. Um, yeah, that was amazing. So. The two other times DSI plays Lamore, Confusion gets to open with them. So that was that was cool. Um, so, yeah, that's when the band came to an end, uh, 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 you know, officially. And we, you know, we end up, obviously, we did a show uh, for Frank's uh, mom to give, raise money for her at uh, CDG. Yeah, Frank, Frank passed in the early 2000s. I remember. Yeah, 2002. Mm -hmm. I remember we were on tour and at the time. I was trying to do a zine. So I, I have actually still have the zine that I never put it out like every other person who did a zine then, but I had an interview with Richie from dark side. Mm -hmm. And I remember them saying, you know, there's going to be a big reunion thing. We're getting everything together for this. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, obviously there's no videos of it and I never heard anything else about it, but, um, Frank passed. Was he, did he pass or did he die tragically? Like how did he pass? No, nah, he died tragically. He, oh, uh, that sucks. He, he was a motorcycle accident. Yeah. Oh shit. I never, yeah, was, I never, um, never caused yeah. the no, but I knew that he passed. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, he was only 28 at the time, 29. And, um, he was, uh, he was NYPD. He was, uh, I think he was, I don't know if he was off duty or, or, you know, leaving the job. He, uh, there was a, a little girl in the street and he kind of swerved out of the way. And he, I think he, you know, he, I can't remember if he, he had hit a truck or whatever, but it was a motorcycle accident and it was a fatal one in, uh, in 2002. And um, by in, in January of 03, we did this huge show for him 
Uh, Rich uh, put it together. I helped to put it together. We were getting a few bands. Um, and it was really cool. I mean, there's there's some flyers out there for it. But what's not on the flyer is that uh, well, Kickback was there. They actually got to do a few songs. And Bulldoze actually even got to do a few songs, too. So there's like two bands that got to play that night that that are not on the flyer. But it, it was a really great, you know, night. And we raised a lot of money, um, you know, for Frank's mom. And that was really special. And then uh, the band rides again in 2007 when we did two shows, actually. Uh, one was at this club Popeye's in upstate New York. Huh. Um, I remember that place because we were playing shows up at that, at that time. Yeah, this was 07, summer of 07. Play Popeye's with All Out War and I think Billy Club Sandwich and a bunch of other bands. And then we play what has been our last show since uh, about a month later at the Carney Irish Hall in Jersey. Gutter, Gutter booked the show. Uh, yeah. Also with, I think, All Out War and it's Billy Club and Dark Side. And that was a wild show because the show ends with this epic girl fight that starts <laughs> in the bathroom, comes out into the as hallway. All, as all crazy girl fights usually start. Yes, in the fucking it goes. Bathroom. It starts in the bathroom. It spills out into the hallway and out into the street. And it was yeah that that was that was quite a night. Um, and yeah, the band has not performed live since two thousand and seven. So that's that's the. That's the live history. Now, uh, let's get into the one thing before we get into the the, the modern day stuff mm-hmm. is Rit to Life would put, as I said earlier, would put Storm the Walls on the beginning of a call for Unity Comp. Mm-hmm. And I know that that probably had to stoke some people to write you guys or check you guys out. Did yeah. you see any impact that came from that? No, we, we, we totally did. And here's how that even happened. In 94, I was at a show in Jersey, might have been the Floor Punch Ignite Earth Crisis show, which was basically Floor Punch's first show. It was this huge epic show. Human Remains was on it. It was like this weird, crazy build, but Ignite was on it and Earth Crisis were on it, right? And I'm talking to Rick and he's got his dish show, whatever, and he he loved confusion and he asked me, if there was any confusion material that's that never came out. And I says, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. There's a song called Storm the Walls. You know, I have it on a dat tape. And he goes, yo, I'm going to put out a comp, man. Why don't we put it on? And I went, okay. It, it, it was just very easy, basic, you know. Yeah, why not? The band no longer existed. Inhuman was just starting that summer, actually. Okay. And I was just like, sure, okay. I didn't know he was going to put it on as the first track. And I didn't know it was going to be a CD that was repressed 700 million times over and put out digitally with nobody's permission. But yeah, that is a song that was recorded in the summer of 93 at Fastlane Studios with the four-piece confusion, me, the two mics, and Ralph. And what's funny is that this guy was supposed to do a music video for the song Storm the Walls. That never happened, actually. But we had the recording and we just kind of sat on it, you know, and that's how it ended up on that compilation. So, yeah, it was just a conversation me and Rick had at that show in Jersey. I think so many people from that time who were checking out the call for unity may not even realize that the the, the history of the band 
Mm, and yeah. I just remember that entire comp truly being set off by that vocal. <laughs> Yeah, and it's yeah. one of the it's one of the most vicious New York hardcore tracks period of all time, and that's no as the kids would say that's no cap. That's still like I could put that thing on just for I could put that thing just on for the riffs, and if for people listening, you know we talked about demise, we talked about Marauder, mm-hmm. that that track still just kind of completely like um, what do they say like preserves in time a moment where New York hardcore had such a metallic pure metallic that opening riff Mm -hmm. and uh, the drum parts and it's it's a very interesting moment for new york hardcore and specifically the groups of bands you guys were talking about it's funny like it's a very death metal song especially if you really pay attention to it mike price has a writing style that's very kind of very informed by like the florida bands very like that that attack picking like you know that you could hear in like malevolent creation and deicide in particular it's just it's very like you know that i don't even i mean honestly that put us really in a class by ourselves because as heavy as marauder got there's very little death metal in marauder it's more thrash metal you know absolutely um so we kind of like went there you know what i'm saying we were just like fuck it you know we we just we were just so enamored by death metal um but the interesting thing about that song is that it has like a lot of groove. I mean, I know I mentioned Outburst, but another band that we loved was was Maximum Penalty, honestly. Um, and Joe Affy's, you know, dear, dear one of the friend best of ours. York, and, yeah. yeah. One, of the, um, one of the best New York hardcore guitarists, period. Yeah. And like, maybe there's a little bit of that in there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, honestly, like the whole bust of this shit up is in a way a, a, a play on Maximum Penalty in a, in a weird weird way. Like, you know what I'm saying? You know, like the bust and bust this shit. Yeah. And like, it's, it, it kind of, that's kind of where it comes from, honestly. Um, so you take that, you take that kind of like more street, darker, blackout, new breed New York hardcore, and you put in Deicide, Morbid Angel, and Malevolent Creation, and that's what that is like, you know? That's what I think. In general, I don't think very few people realize the connection that you guys had to that music because obviously mm-hmm. we're in a 30-year look back. It, it's taken for granted the the metallic influence in hardcore since, mm-hmm. since these things were done. Marauder is one of the greatest examples where kids are obsessed with one record that you're talking about. Yeah. And I always tell kids, like, I think one of the reasons why Marauder didn't get bigger was that they went to um, Century Media, which would have been great for them now. All the big death metal and hardcore bands that are going to Century Media are fucking huge. But I remember it being hard to get that CD for less it than... It was. Because it was an imprint. And I tell people this, like, it's an anachronism now. But, yep. like, but the Marauder Master Killer was an imp- was an, uh, import record. So if you were at the record store and you went to buy the CD, that's $15, not 10 like everything else. Here's the thing. Century Media, that came out in January 96, I'm pretty sure. That's when Master Kill actually came out. Recorded in 95, came out at the very beginning of 96, I'm pretty sure. Or in Europe, ASN 95, America beginning 96. So I used to do college radio then, okay? Century Media had a very, very small U.S. office in California back then. Um, And I remember I was getting like the I Hate God stuff and I got Only Living Witness. Did they have that band Trouble? Yes, they had. Yeah, they had like a lot of oddball stuff. Even like, 
they had some depth. They had Grave. They had yeah. Unleashed. Um, but Grave, overall, I got him too from that video. Remember the videos they put out? Yeah, no, fuck it yeah, was uh, what were they called? Trace of Death. That's how I Traces first heard of Death. Grave. Yes, yes. They they were you know an extreme metal label for the most part, but they signed the only Witness and they signed Marauder. But you're right. For some reason, it was way easier to get an Earache CD or a Roadrunner CD than it was a Century Media CD. And I, I think they almost had the same fucking distributor back then, uh, R.E.D. Dis- distribution back then. Um, Century Media's presence was not that big uh, at that point. It became big later on, though, actually. Definitely later on. Um, it was a little harder to get those records. That's a good point. Another thing, the other point I want to make is I feel like Marauder and All Out War, right? Bands that honestly should have had a shit ton more metalheads listening to them than they did for a long time. All Out War finally, finally the metalheads found them in the last couple of years. And I've said this to Mike Score. I'm like, I'm, it's so fucking awesome that you guys got the right exposure and more than just the hardcore scene found you guys because you needed more than just the hardcore scene to hear how fucking awesome your band is. You know what I'm saying? But Marauder, I don't know. I feel like almost their entire fan base is hardcore people. When I saw them in, um, I think the tour was 94 in November, it was Fear Factory, Mm -hmm. Marauder, and Starkweather was the opener. Oh, wow. And mm. before Mar- and it was the Trocadero, Arrow, and they didn't have a barricade yet. Mm. And at the end of the Starkweather set, there was a fight. And when the fight ended, Saab got on stage after he got done the fight, got on stage and took the mic and was like, fuck you motherfuckers if you're going <laughs> to act like this. I think a big problem with getting the metalheads to accept Marauder mm. was that Marauder was completely unhinged yes, and like yes. there were, like <laughs> when you're a, when you're a when you're a metal dude you want your you want your hero to be backstage mm. with, with females mm-hmm. maybe you get to sign something maybe he may sign something they're not really acclimated to like puerto rican maniac dudes who are gonna fight you in the pit you're say motherfucker right. yeah and, and i think as much as it sucks to say image wise i know that marauder from everything that i saw was like where Manball was just a little bit slower to get on the record labels and, and, but they were doing the smaller clubs and they were doing longer runs. Right. I don't know. I'd love to get Jorge, if he could be more cognizant of that time Mm. on the show to talk to him, like, how is it that you guys fumbled that ball? Because that master killer record is a classic, Yeah. but everything that came from it wasn't more tours with fear factory. There wasn't more presence. There was something. There's a, Mm-hmm. There was something missing in that thing. Now with all at war, I mean, again, the same thing I, we've always felt where all at war, they played some amazing shows. They even did that one tour in 2000 where it was them and dying fetus. And mm-hmm. they, and I think what happened was, is the true death metal people didn't want to get ninja kicked in the face. That's the thing. <laughs> it's, it has to do with like, well, fear in a way. Um, yep. The, the crowds that love the All Out Wars, the Marauders, the, the hardcore end, are guys who like to fight and can be very intimidating. And not every metalhead is down with that. Some are. Don't get me wrong. Um, especially, you know, the metalheads who like the heavier shit. I know some who can fucking get down. But you're right, though. Back then? Nah, not really. 
You know, it, it's just like, it's like, nah, I don't want to have anything to do with that shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it is interesting though. Aside from the fact that I do feel that like more metalheads should, should have heard Marauder. I do love the fact that they are, they're like kind of huge now, you know, like they're this like cult band, you know, that people talk about all the time, dude, like on social media, people are constantly talking about them. You know what I'm saying? And they haven't played in a while. And there's, you know, all the stuff with troubles that. and yeah. exactly. Um, but they're like, they're kind of bigger than they've ever been right now. So it, it's just, it's just very strange. And I love that. Like all Out war gets on the fucking cover of decibel and dude, I love that. I went to see life of agony the other night in New Jersey at Starland ballroom. Joe, there was 2,500 people at that show. Okay. That's so sick. Singing every word to every single life of agony song. And all three of these bands are from the early fucking nineties. So, you know, I think it's fucking great. And, and I'm, I'm happy for fucking all these people and all these friends of mine. You know, I think it's awesome. When I booked Marauder last for the festival, they were on the day with the 25 to life with Fury of five earth crisis had just played mm. and Marauder gets on stage and everyone's like, this is going to be one of the most violent. Everyone's like, dude, and no, it was a fucking sing along. If you watch that, Hey, five, six video, mm-hmm. I was mind blown because I was expecting, you know, some shenanigans and whatever else. Instead, it was so many young fans and old fans trying to, to the point where even Jorge was looking around like, what the fuck? Like he's used to that big, that big horseshoe. Right. You have to watch that video. And it just shows you exactly what you're saying is the fan base grew yeah. when the band was inactive. Mm-hmm. And that record is just so iconic that I think it goes back to what you said. Fans don't let go of certain hardcore records and master killer is in that hierarchy of New York hardcore records from that period yep. that just will never be forgotten alongside the river runs red. You yeah. know, whether you're demonstrating my style, like there's just these iconic things uh, before we, I should say before we get into the last bit where we talk about the new confusion stuff, I know that you did Inhuman, and I know you were getting back to New York Hardcore. I want to have another show mm-hmm. where we just go, now that New York Hardcore is back running and, Mike, you're doing Inhuman, <laughs> because there's so many shows that you guys play. Like, well, you know me. I'm a, I'm a nerd. I have I have every flyer, so many things. Yeah, Inhuman yeah. was just – Inhuman and the things that you would go on to do in the late 90s is so cool. I don't want to try to yada, yada, yada here. No, but I get it. I mean, I am, what's funny I, is that I imagine... the, bandom, it's, the band has never broken up. This is our 28th year as a band. Uh, I mean, we're almost a 30-year-old band. There's, there's never been a time where we've been officially broken up. Um, we played two really good shows in New York last year where a lot of people came out, more people than I thought would come out, which was really nice. And this year for my 50th birthday, we're going to try to do something, a, a cool confusion show in the summer. Um, Holy shit. We're trying to get everybody's schedules. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I started in human the moment confusion broke up, you know, like I didn't I didn't look back, you know, um, and we kind of came out of a place where what inspired me to do that band really quick was literally and honestly going to every shutdown and indecision show that I would that because that was the Brooklyn shows happening 
when all when, when the one end of Brooklyn ended, another end of Brooklyn started. Okay, like, and I was like, you know, I I kind of miss this. Like, I miss this kind of hardcore. Like, I miss, you know, I was doing such metally shit for so long that I actually kind of miss this stuff. And what's funny is that going to that Ignite show in 95, okay? Also, seeing that band in 95, Joe, holy shit. Like, I mean, I felt like I actually got to see Uniform Choice. So that had a huge impact on me because I loved Uniform Choice. I never got to see them. And another record from that time period, I think you love this record too, uh, Slapshot 16, Valve Hate. One, one of my all-time favorites. Completely inspirational and influential on Inhuman was those those four pieces of the puzzle. The early days of Indecision, Shutdown, uh, Ignite, and Slapshot. So, yeah. That's fucking awesome. And also, it's great to hear that they're from, you know, non-New York sources. You know, it's fucking Yeah, great. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I mean, I always loved like Inside Out. I love No for an Answer. Love No for an Answer. Um, I love the classic first wave Cali band, Circle Jerks, Black Flag, Dead Kennedy. I mean, I love all that shit. Um, Des- Descendants, uh, all of it. I'm a huge All fan, which kind of has nothing to do with any of this, but All is like one of my favorite nah, bands. I, I, I seen All, I seen All in this band called the Toadies at the wow. trial. I was in. I seen all and the toad all brought the toadies as the opener Shit. at the Trocadero when all did that uh, record with the uh, the track Million Bucks ninety five yeah. yeah yeah that's the first time that's the first time I saw all was at the Trocadero for that amazing but yeah I mean you know it is a lot and then in in twenty ten the the three guys in shutdown hit me up and say Mike we want to do a band with you and I said okay. And we started The Last Stand, and The Last Stand's been together for 13 years. So <laughs> it's a lot, man. It is a lot. Um, and, you should be you know, proud. I mean, it's just to be proud of that you still have that legacy. I mean, I, we're, I'm not yada yada, and I definitely am going to bring you back for a part two just to go through because there's so much shit that you okay. did, definitely. so much impact. It's it. just, your cultural impact and your perspective because of how long you've done it alone is worth another hour or two, but I don't want to get to the point where I'm like, we're an hour five and we're finally talking about the confusion stuff. No, no, so, no. I get it. I get it. It is a lot to cover. And I, and well, I thank you and I appreciate that. Thank you. No, I mean, again, I've known you a long time and every time we get together, we talk about hardcore for a long time. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think we even hung out. It was, uh, who the fuck? Your brother was there. It was at that 2014 B&B bowl in the dead, the dead of the sun. We were watching all out war. It was. Yeah. 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 I remember that was a good. And tour, we're all man. hanging out together. I'm like, I mean, way before we had the podcast, but I, I, know, I, I really, I, I really love that you're touching on the, the master color thing because it is people like Lumpy and Days mm-hmm. who have this ability to have an ear for this younger crowd and what the younger band is going to be. Mm-hmm. But these younger people like Lumpy are also still giving true homage and respect to these bands like Marauder. And now that pulls confusion into the day's world so uh yeah how did all this come together man it's really interesting i I mean you may agree within the last 10 years maybe a little under 10 years i would see people talk about the band and i would see like other bands 
mention us on like Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. And a couple of years ago, somebody made a video that is no longer on YouTube. That was a whole mini documentary about how we started Deathcore and that we're the first Deathcore band ever, actually. I don't know if you got to see this video. It blew me away. It, it was like it had text on it and everything. It's not it's 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 gone from YouTube. And that was like the beginning of me going, what the fuck is that? Like people care about confusion? Like what? And then I remember that band Soul Search apparently had, had mentioned us somewhere. And then I remember, I don't know, like I, I would just get weird kind of messages here and there on like social media from random kids or kids asking me if I had merch. That's kind of when I knew things were getting interesting, when people would ask about merch. And then about five years ago, somebody was bootlegging a shirt and I, I famously got mad, actually. And the kid like immediately took it down and stopped answering my emails. And then I, I, I made a mea culpa on Facebook where I went, you know what? I regret getting mad because I'm actually flattered that somebody gives a fuck about the band. And I said, from this point on, if somebody makes a bootleg shirt, more power to them. I just want one. Okay. And then somebody made another bootleg and the kid hit me up and he, you know, he made like two different colors and like, it's really cool, like confusion bootleg. And then I made like a batch of shirts and like, I don't know, like all these kind of weird things were happening all within uh, under a 10 year period with the band. Um, and then like, I saw that band illusion that kind of took our lettering and I was like, Oh wow. Like that's interesting. I mean, that's very specific kind of lettering. And then I found out that yes, it, it was, you know, yeah, they, they were going for the confusion looking logo. It, it wasn't a coincidence. I was like, Oh, that's fucking cool. Um, and then this band called Distort hit me up. And the, yep. the guy from Distort said that, yeah, we got our name from Distorted Visions. You know, we love you, blah, blah, blah. We love the band. And it's like, wow, okay. Um, and then I think two years ago, uh, Mark Yoshitomi, one of my best friends, he's one of the co-owners of Generation. Uh, somebody sold him a shit ton of demos, okay, to, to sell to the store, basically. And, you know, he put them on eBay and he didn't know what he was going to get for them. Uh, and two of them were the two confusion demos. And a, a third was this weird tape that I'd never even seen before, which turned out to be like a pre-release of the seven inch and had the songs in a different order. Like I didn't even know what the fuck this thing was. Wow. And all of these sold for hundreds of dollars. And Mark was very surprised and I was surprised. And Mark uh, had just kind of beginning uh, you know, the beginnings of doing Generation also as a label as well, like a Generation Records imprint for actual releases. And he says, Mike, why don't why don't we do Confusion? Like, let's, you know, what do you think about that? And I was like, fuck yeah, you know? And this goes back to like 2020, the initial idea, okay? 2020, maybe early 2021. It was during, during the pandemic. Um... It took a while to actually get things rolling, to get all the flyers and all the pictures. And we had one guy who was going to do the layout. Initially, this was going to be a vinyl-only release. And the guy sat on shit for almost a full year until I actually said, yo, let's get all this material back. I'm, I'm not – this is ridiculous. Let's fucking make this happen, you know? Um, and I think I made an Instagram post about the fact that, yes, the vinyl is actually going to happen, Okay. And then Lumpy hit me up 
And I wasn't at this point super familiar with the label, honestly, uh, days. Uh, and he's like, oh, is this is this still coming out? And I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, on vinyl. And he's like, well, is it just vinyl? I says, yeah, you know. And he's like, well, what about digital and CD? I says, well, we don't have anybody doing that because Mark, Mark is a vinyl guy. Mark wants to do just vinyl. He doesn't want to, you know, go into the whole digital world. He's, you know, whatever, that, which is fine by, by me. Um, and he's like, yo, let, you know, I would love to do it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. And it, that's really how it fucking happened. Like an Instagram conversation, honestly. I have still never met him in person, Joe. Isn't that funny? Really? Yep. That's crazy because I, I would assume you guys, he goes to a lot of New York shows. Maybe he just never met and uh, never linked up at the shows. But he's the guy, if you want to see the young kids really gravitate to that, I think he has a great vehicle with the label to do so. Yeah, well, I mean, then I kind of got like a crash course in, in everything that he has his hand and everything he puts out. And I, I actually was already uh, checking out Painted Truth, but didn't realize it was on his label. Like I usually, like I even bought it on Bandcamp and I'm like, oh shit, this is on days. Like, you know what I'm saying? It was all kind of piecing everything together. And then I see like the Standstill band and then like Koyo and I see all this other shit that he's done. And then we're talking, like, I also wasn't aware that he was in King Nine until he fucking told me. I was like, oh shit, you are? Like, I've seen that band, you know? He played I guitar on that Marauder set that I was talking about. Right, right. Like, you know what? I mean, then I'm thinking to myself, maybe I did meet this dude once from somebody, but um, he was just really cool and really sincere and really excited about working with me and putting out Confusion. He's like, yo, this is fucking one of the New York's fucking best bands. It's about time you guys had your shit out properly. I would love to be a part of this. And then me, him, and Mark had a chat, and everything just kind of, you know, started rolling from there. Um, he's going to get his own uh, color for days, like uh, exclusive color. Uh, and then uh, Generation Records is going to get two colors uh, just for Generation. Uh, I think the, the first press is going to be 500, uh, you know, pieces, basically. Uh, 400 from Generation and 100 from Days. But it's going to be on CD and, of course, on digital. And it just kind of all, you know, pieced together pretty easily, man. Um, but I was just really fucking flattered, you know, by all the attention and, you know, bootleg shirts and, like, just nice fucking messages on social media. I mean, you know, like you said, I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty, pretty underground fucking person. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are people that listen to New York Hardcore that don't even know who Inhuman is and Inhuman's a 28-year-old band. So I would imagine there's plenty of people that don't know who Confusion is. But what I've learned is that a lot of younger people know who Confusion is, which is a huge mindfuck, Joe. <laughs> the younger kids, to their credit, research in a very bizarre fashion. Mm -hmm. It's not like a librarian would research, like we're going to start in 1980 and we're going to work our way through to 81, 83. They, they look for certain things. And when something pops to them, it goes. Yeah. And so like, that's the distort, that's the illusion, you know, yeah. like uh, whether it's a graphic idea first that draws them into it or sonically with the way the sound is, but there is no fucking rhyme or reason. I mean, there's still groups of kids that are obsessed with the idea of Stefan and kick back. And this has been going right. on six, yeah. seven years now of kids who would pay an arm and a leg to see them play. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's an absurdity to think because 
the obscurity that you guys were, you know, in from the time the band was over to you guys, you know, obviously with the zines kept some things alive. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that this modern era is really jumping in and respecting these bands the way they should, because I mean, as a kid coming into hardcore, I was blown away that hardcore wasn't just fast punk or it wasn't just this. Like there was an, an element like confusion. It just fucked my whole world up. So it is very cool to see people give homage and, and pure respect, not just like, oh, we took the logo, but we don't know the songs. And I mean, right. No, no. They know it, who the band is. That's the cool it, part. I mean, yeah. And I think it was just really flattering and, and like, you know. Just fucking great to see, like, as, as I'm about to turn 50, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that this is finally going to fucking come out and finally happen. And, you know, like I said, like, I, I'm, I'm active. I've been very active in, in playing shows in, in the New York scene and putting out music and, you know, trying to keep it moving forward. Um, but Confusion has obviously quite a special place for me, you know? Um, confusion is where I built the relationships, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that that last to this day, you know, um, and again, it just it makes me very happy, and I'll be I'll be very thrilled when when I, I hold the fucking physical product in my hand and when it's out, you know. Um, already, like uh, the Storm the Walls track that's out now, like it's you know it's on all the streaming services and shit. Um, on Spotify, we've got already five hundred you know, followers already after seven days, which was really nice to see, you know? Um, and like, you know, I gained a whole bunch of people checking out like the Instagram page and it's, it's just, you know, days, the fact that it's on days has put a lot of new eyes on it, period. You know what I'm saying? Um, and there are people who heard the song for the first time ever this week, Joe, and they loved it. And those people like hit me up. So that made me feel really fucking good, you know? No, I think that the thing that not only should feel rewarding, but also it, it it puts it has to put a smile on your face that there's some kid who was probably your age when you started the band mm-hmm. checking this band out and sure. coming up and be like, This is fucking amazing. I mean, it does suck at times when bands get a second life almost I mean, especially with Frank being passed, you know, whatever. There's times where the band doesn't get to see the fruits of their energies, so to speak, until much later. Yeah. But I mean, it's great that you guys are getting your due and through through this combination, I mean, Generation has put out some sick fucking reissues on vinyl. There's a yeah, they've been yeah, in, yeah. not you got I mean, this is this just adds to the amount of shit that Mark has put in put out in the last couple of years. And I and I and I agree entirely. Like you've always maintained just being Mike Scadano. Yeah, you're in this band, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen you just standing watching a show. Oh, you know, like you're not the guy. You're I've never no. seen you behind the guitar amp. You're usually the fan watching it. You know, like you've never stopped being anything besides yourself, regardless of what band you've been in. So it's awesome to see people give due and respect to Confusion. Yeah, I'm I'm a musician. I'm I'm a vocalist. I can write some songs, but I'm also a fan. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I love going to shows. I, I go to shows every weekend, Joe. If it's not a hardcore show, it's a death metal show or a black metal show or a goth show. I like a lot of different shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it, it's it's important for me to have all of my, my music out there, you know, and 
it, it's it's very important, I think, to have the confusion stuff out there, especially learning just how influential it's been to certain people and how much certain people appreciate it, you know? Um, and it is a great marriage of the two labels between, you know, the new generation label being, you know, Days and Mark putting it out because, you know, Mark came up from the same era I did. So it's just, I think it's just a really good fucking marriage, you know? And I just can't wait to see like where it reaches, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like the brand new ears, you know what I'm saying? Like new fans, people who are say only like a pain of truth fan or fans of, you know, like the really more heavier shit. And they hear this, like, I wonder, you know, what, what they'll think of it. You know what I'm saying? Also, I mean, we touched on it. The, 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 the term would be the kids say like normalize. There's a, there's a normalization of metallic influence and in hardcore now that would have been a shoot. I, I don't even know if you ever uh, were submitted to maximum rock and roll back in the day when you had the demo, <laughs> you know, the deal, yeah, you yeah. know, the deal. like oh, yeah. the amount of, the amount of people that had a field day on a high horse of hardcore purity and punk purity of course. completely missed a boat on so much awesome music that was metallicized. And you brought up a lot of great examples like alt war and, Dude, Starkweather, I mean, Jake Bannon should still be sending uh, some royalty checks over to Starkweather because yes. they are absolutely the yes. prototype. And I mean, to, they also have one of these great things of still being able to make a new release. Like, I mean, their later 2000 releases were unstoppable, just unbelievable. I mean, I say this with, you know, tongue in cheek, but Converge stole Starkweather's career. I, I, you know, I, I've, I, I've said that before. Um, you know, I mad respect for Converge. They're a huge band and they, you know, they're their own band. Don't get me wrong, but especially, but back then, like I always remembered, I was like, wow, this is a far cry from that East coast assault track. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I feel like Starkweather came out of the gate being Starkweather. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Like, and you know, but I, I do think, people are, are, are kind of coming around to them too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I understand there are, there are some, there are some stock where the reissues coming, uh, at least I hope there are. I, I think that is what I heard. So hopefully fucking those reach some new, new ears as well. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, I think it's great. And I mean, you know, I, as far as, um, and this is a bit of an exclusive, uh, any form of live performance, um, me and, and Mike and Mike have talked and we do we do want to get together and rehearse and see what happens, Joe. So that is I all I'll say. <laughs> you get the ball rolling and I'll get the show booking. That's all there I'm saying. There you go. There you, know? you go, man. Uh, that's, um, that's, yeah. that's a great way for us to wrap this up. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's have you shout out how people can get in contact with you and then if there's any date-specific information regarding these releases. Uh, yeah, um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, it's Confusion, uh, New York Deathcore, and on Instagram, I believe it's Confusion Deathcore, uh, you can just find me, Michael Scandato, on Facebook or Instagram, just my name, uh, Inhuman is also on Instagram, The Last Stand is also on Instagram, uh, pretty accessible guy, uh, as far as a release date goes, um, Lumpy wanted to get a track out to kind of get a buzz going. And I completely agreed. Um, it's probably looking like June, 
the latest July, but I, I would probably say a June release for the, you know, the CD, vinyl, and digital, knock on wood, because I know there's the delays, obviously, with vinyl. But everyone will know when it's coming. Uh, th- there will be a, a pre-order of sorts once we get, like, from the pressing plant. Okay, you'll have it in four weeks. Once we know, like, that kind of information, the actual pre-order will be up. But for now, just the Storm of the Walls track is up, and we got a really cool T-shirt uh, on the Days website uh, for sale as well. But, uh, yeah, dude. Thank you so much, Joe Hardcore. Um, Mike, thank you for everything. And uh, we're going to get ready for a part two. Yeah. And um, just thank you for everything you've done for Hardcore. And I'm now going to get a whole new sled- set of notes ready for Inhuman in the last day. <laughs> yeah, man. Great. And just, There's, uh, dude, just, thank, you, just thank you for coming on, man. Sincerely. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it, man. And thank you for all you do for Hardcore. Now, I could like... Uh, like I said earlier, man, sometimes there are people that find hardcore and they can walk away from it. You know, like you have, and there's a million people we're friends with. Oh yeah. You guys still going to shows. I'm like, well, what else were I going to do? I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I couldn't imagine being on this call and you'd be like, yeah, well then I stopped going to hardcore shows for 15 years. until someone found confusion, you know, like it, it's in your blood. It's in your family's blood. And I, when we have this conversation, you can see the depth. Oh, fuck. I almost mm-hmm. forgot. I have to mm-hmm. ask this question. Yeah. This is a question of, do you think mm-hmm. it's the, uh, what would we call it? The chicken and the egg. Mm-hmm. Suffocation, pierce from within. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they, they have the, you know, the first verse, they have the thing, you know, the pierce with, and then you have that click, click. Dun, dun, dun. Uh-huh. Yeah, it gets very moshy. Yes. Yeah. Can you think of something that would later influence or be a huge part of hardcore any more than that? That came from the metallic side. Now, obviously, Earth Crisis, all these 90s stuff, all were playing, but no one, I mean, Jim, Jim from um Jim from Buffalo lives in Philadelphia. He was in uh Turmoil, he was in Promise. Mm-hmm. They always say that his oldest band, he is the the uh, the father of the chug riff. Mm. And I'm like, dude, there's been death metal bands chugging way before yeah, hardcore. Yeah. Oh, I need yeah. to know your perspective on. I mean, obviously, once once I heard the suffocation, Pierce went within, and you could hear it in the uh, wars. You could hear it when they were doing it later on, or more of their stuff. Where do you think the like the actual the, the palm muted deep? Chug, where do you think? Who do you think has more ownership and um, credence to say we're the ones that did it first? Honestly, it. I personally, okay, that record comes out in '95. Yes, it's death metal's death death year. Actually, yeah, uh, it's Suffocation's last record on Roadrunner. It didn't do very well initially. That record It's regarded as a classic now. It was not regarded as a classic then. Um, they barely toured for that record. Um, honestly, the, the early nineties metallic bands were doing that before suffocation. Like, mm-hmm. and honestly, like dark side was kind of doing that already. And confusion had an outro that was pretty much all chug. And where did you guys, where did you guys grab that from? Honestly, the death metal the death metal of Florida and, and Sweden. And it, it just was like, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the death metal that w- had already existed, you know what I'm saying? Like obituary, honestly, tremendous, tremendous influence on confusion. Uh, Rich O'Brien loved death metal as well, which completely reflects in Dark Side. Um, I mean, it, it it was kind of there already. You know what I'm saying? I feel like it was there already. Uh, Starkweather's demo has really brutal stuff from 1990 um, and the Crossbearer record. Um, but I do think, though, that particular record and that particular riff definitely means a lot to some people that came later, but probably a little less to people who were doing some heavy shit before. Does that help at all? Yes. Okay. I just had, um, I had it in my head and I had it in notes. I'm like, where does, where does Chug? I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to get this on this one. Because I know Suffocation has a, like a lot of the, uh, the slam, like, you know, like Suffocation accidentally invented like slam death metal and Suffocation has like that not really accidental influence on a lot of beatdown. Okay. Um, when Suffocation was writing that shit, they were not thinking about hardcore music. Okay. Fuck at all. No. At all. De- they were death metal up your ass band. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think those guys, no one in that band was listening to hardcore when they were writing their first two, three full length records. No, they were not obituary. Those guys, you know what I'm saying? That shit came later on is what I'm saying. Like okay. that whole mind frame is a bit later. Dude, thank you once again for your impact and <laughs> also welcome. for your input. I appreciate that more, you know. No, thank you, bro. All right. Have a great one. You too. Well, there you have it, folks. What a fucking conversation. A great look back into the world of confusion. So much cool shit that Mike got to see, be a part of, and give or bear witness to Lemores and New York Hardcore. And just, I hope that as you're listening, you realize he's a true fan, not just of hardcore and metal, but just of music in general. And cross your fingers. Maybe we can pull out something and make confusion happen if this is hardcore. But... As he said, Confusion is now streaming on Spotify. Thanks to Lumpy and Days for having the the love of hardcore and the want to bring Confusion to the masses after many years of not obscurity because you could find them, but showing the younger kids the way of one of the coolest, most original, and pioneers of metallic hardcore. If anybody ever wants to listen to some awesome podcast, sometimes that From Within Records podcast is good. I always love Post America podcast, the one with Chubby Fresh that Richie did. You should just listen to in general. Um, He has a lot of awesome ones. And we do a podcast together called Rule of Three with G from Broad Street Breakdown. I'm hoping once Vinny gets done with his Jedi Mind Tricks tours and decompresses. Broad Street Breakdown does things more often. I'd love to see some more Rule of Three episodes coming out. Oh, also make sure you're checking out Never Ran, Never Will Records. Richie from Wisdom and Chains and Rule of Three, Post-America Podcast. And he has his own boutique record label. Some amazing splits coming out. Awesome shit. Love seeing hardcore dudes. Good do good work for good reasons. Bob has Rebirth Records. Dylan has Take. 
down records. So many cool dudes doing awesome records these days. It's fucking fantastic. Support the people that support you. Support Real Hardcore. Support 185 Mile South Podcast. Absolutely fucking great. Even when I don't agree with some of the the people on the show's takes on music, it, it's such a fun listen. And Hard Lure, sometimes they get, I listen and it's fucking hilarious. And um, yeah, support the shit around you. Don't worry about what the internet and the propaganda tells you to listen to and what's cool and what's popping and what's real. You see it, you know it, and you feel it. That's what counts. Nothing else matters. Uh, links will be up on TIHCpodcast.com. And finally, uh, we had previously talked about this very briefly, but with the passing of my dog Abel, we rescued Miss Bernice or Berry. She's doing great. And the people behind Philly Bully Team Rescue need your help. I, I, I know that there's cheap pounds in the city. I know that there's, you know, puppy mills and all this other bullshit to get a dog. But now having rescued Miss Barry and just seeing such a beautiful, loving, gentle creature, knowing that there's people like the Philly Boy team who rescue these animals, put them in people's homes to foster and care for them until they get their forever home. Um, Bob had previously the last two Philly Hardcore shows, barbecues, donated all the funds to them. I'd like for people to, if they're able to, donate some funds to the Philly Bully Team, which is at Philly Bully Team on Instagram. They are no longer taking in new bullies to rescue because the amount of debt paid out between all, I mean, when you spend the money to rescue a dog, that dog comes with shots, it comes with spade, medical records, um... They are super thorough, and you can see it in the the passion that the rescuers and the people that work for them are. You can see it in the passion and the fact that they take the money that you pay their rescue, and they put it right back in. And, you know, it's not a profit business, and they aren't having to stop because they are getting behind, and they need Anyone who can just donate, like donate, even 20 bucks counts. You know, 200 people donated 20 bucks. That's an impact for them. So they do great things for people who are like us and missing that moment of having our dog in the house, but also amazing things for beautiful creatures, pit bulls, the bully breeds, who to me are the warmest animals in the world. And it's amazing to see what they do and they need some help. So if you can help them, that'd be fucking fantastic. All right, take care. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.